Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast where four friends talk about movies together. Uh, I wanted to make a joke about talking, but my brain isn't working fast enough. <laughs> An odd huh. film subject for this only auditory medium. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, movie Mumble, for those of you unfamiliar, is just a base, basic, well, I mean, the concept is basic, but I don't know if we're basic, right? Basic movie discussion podcast where we all get together. We take turns picking a movie. We watch it. Then we talk about it. There are no rules about the movies we can pick. We can have seen them before a million times, never seen them at all. They can be foreign or domestic, live action or animated, anything at all. Um, we tend to spoil the films we're talking about. So if you're worried about that, please watch a film before listening to its episode. And at the end of each film, uh, each podcast, Wow, my brain is fried. We announce what we're watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. Joining me on this long, long week are my uh, also speakable friends, Joel Lewis. Hello. Tim Gerard. Hi. And Zeke Perez. Howdy. I thought you were going to give us like Amish names or something. <laughs> no. Oh, God. Jebediah. <laughs> Why? No, we're going to talk about that, and that's going to be a lot. Yeah. So as mentioned, each month we all take turns picking, and this month our movie selector was Tim. And Tim brought us Mute, a sci-fi film released originally on Netflix in 2018. Tim, would you like to tell us a bit about your film? So yeah, so it's um, it was uh, along the time where I feel like there were a bunch of different trailers showing up, and I, I don't know if I'm remembering this wrong, but I feel like it was when it was the the sort of big push of like Netflix originals where they were just like every week, there were just like a ton of movies. It's like, Oh, I've got to watch this one. I got to watch this one. And I think what made me finally sit down and watch this one was uh, the song that was playing in the trailer. Like every time it would pop up, you know, you go to watch Netflix and you know, it's like, Oh, this is what's queued up. So we're going to play a trailer for it. And I was just like, Oh man, like this looks great. And it, it had, uh, you know, kind of a, a slight bit of, of a Blade Runner vibe, you know, that sort of future with like, but with the neon, but like done in a realistic way. Like everyone's not wearing space suits. Like people are wearing regular clothes, but slightly futuristic. And um, it looked really cool. And it had Paul Rudd in it. So I was like, okay, I got to watch this. Um, and uh, it was, it was one of those, uh, you know, like with under the skin where as I'm watching it, I'm like, Oh man, I need to bring this to the podcast. And, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was great. It was like one of those things too, where I feel like a lot of the Netflix original stuff was kind of questionable and it was like, oh, are they just kind of throwing out, you know, throwing a bunch of spaghetti to the wall to see what sticks or is this, you know, is, is this stuff actually good? And it was like, wow, it was like really well-made really, you know, I love the story. Um, and, uh, it's basically, um, you know, it, it kind of starts out with this, this mute bartender and, uh, he, He's mute because as a child, he had an accident where a boat's propeller cut his throat open. And um, because he's Amish, his mother chose to not let him have surgery and that God would heal him. So big surprise, he ends up mute because, you know, God didn't heal him. Um, and then it kind of flashes forward. And, and part of what's great about it, too, is at the very beginning, you don't get much of a sense of what time period this is because it shows the boat, it shows the kid, they're Amish, they're at the hospital, and the hospital looks kind of like it might be futuristic. And, um, you know, that you're kind of assuming, okay, they have the, 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 the ability to kind of maybe fix this. 
And then it kind of shows him in his apartment as an adult. And again, he's, he's dressed with just like a white button down shirt, buttoned all the way to the top. I think he has suspenders, black pants. It's a very modest apartment. And then all of a sudden it shows him like at his job at this club. And you're just like, Holy shit, what world is this? You know, which I feel like was one of my favorite parts of this is that you, you, you know, you kind of get drawn in like this, drawn in, this could have been today. And all of a sudden you're in, you're in the future, you know, and, and you feel very much like, I think he is supposed to like out, like, uh, you know, uh, this isn't his world. He's just kind of moving in it. And that, that sort of jarring contradiction of, of, you know, his lifestyle and then the way the world is, um, you know, and that's kind of where you, I think you get this sense of this Blade Runner world where it's like very, like very neon in a lot of places, very, very big and very expensive in some areas, but very kind of like, you know, kind of small and poor and crammed in other areas. Um, so, so we find out he's, he's dating this woman who's a waitress and, um, we're like, okay, that's cute. They've got this relationship. And then, you know, we see Paul Rudd and we're kind of like, oh, okay, he's in this, what does he have to do with this story? And we find out that the woman, you know, the mute guy's dating has, you know, someone else in her life. And you're, you're not really told who, and then you maybe start to get the sense of, Oh, is it, is it Paul Rudd? You know, is, is, does she have another guy, this and that? And then she disappears and we don't know what happens to her until almost the very end of the movie, which what's kind of messed up is you almost forget about that at times because, you know, he's constantly looking for her, but so much stuff is happening and they're you're getting so, uh, so little, he gets little clues here and there along the way. But so, you know, there's also so much time spent with Paul Rudd's character and you're kind of like, well, what, what's going on with this guy? And, um, so you find out that he's like this, uh, military surgeon who went AWOL and is now doing surgery on like mobsters when they come in with like bullet, bullet wounds. And, but he wants to get out of the country. They're in uh, Berlin, I believe. And he wants to go to America. So throughout the whole movie, his motivation is like, you know, he's working with this guy, like, get me my papers. I want a passport for me and my daughter. I want to get out of here. I want to go to America. I'm sick of it, sick of it here. So that's kind of his motivation through the whole thing. And little by little, you know, you see him interacting with, um, I forgot, I forgot the main character's name. I should know that. What's, what's the Leo Leo. Yeah. Okay. So you see little interactions with Leo and Paul Rudd's character. His name is uh, Bill. And you, you kind of like, okay, like knowing how stories work, they're going to kind of interact somehow. There's a reason why they're connecting. You know, part of it was because, you know, Bill was at the club where Leo is the um, a bartender and his girlfriend was a waitress. And, you know, you, you see them crossing paths and then you kind of find that, okay, like their paths are, are more entwined. Uh, plus, you know, Bill, Paul Rudd's character also has this, this friend, um, Donald, who they call him duck played by, uh, uh, what's his name? Justin Thoreau. Justin Thoreau. I was just talking about today. Like, why didn't I remember his name? You know, uh, and, you know, they're kind of working together as surgeons and, you know, it's like, Oh, these guys seem like they might be nice guys. And, and, and that's one of the things that I, thought of too is part, part of why I think they cast Paul Rudd in this is because, you know, he's like this instantly likable guy. And this, this movie kind of flips that on its, like, this is the first time or maybe the only time I see Paul Rudd play a villain in a film. And it was, it was, it was amazing. It was great to see that he could do that. Um, 
So as we're going through the movie and Leo is trying to figure out what happened to his girlfriend and he's, you know, kind of picking up clues here and there. And in the meantime, it's getting, you know, closer to when Paul Rudd's trying to get out of here. And they do such a great job of, I think, the first time I watched this, kind of downplay certain aspects, downplaying certain aspects like that Paul Rudd has a daughter. And what we eventually come to find out is that that girl, that daughter is actually Leo's girlfriend's daughter. And that was the person she was talking about. And she wanted to leave, you know, get her daughter and be able to leave with her daughter and get her away from Bill. And in the meantime, Bill is trying to leave the country with his daughter. So you kind of see like, oh, okay, that's what was going on. Um, and, uh, you know, in the meantime, we also find out that, that, that Duck, Justin Thoreau's character, is also um, a pedophile. So this kind of comes out and it kind of throws this, this interesting dynamic between the two of them because, you know, Bill finds out and he confronts him with it. And it's this weird moment of like, you know, okay, like what's he going to do? Is he going to like, you know, disown him? Like you kind of get the sense, you know, these, these guys have also been torturing people. Is he going to torture his friend? And it's left with this uneasy alliance, um, which I feel like is is in a great way when we take like two people who I think by this point in the film, we know they're kind of the bad guys and it's like, Oh, look, you were able to make one of them worse than the other, you know? And, and th there's this kind of uneasy thing. And you find out that, that Donald has actually been giving clues to Leo all along, kind of stringing him along, which has been fucking up the process of Bill getting his papers to get out of the country. So at one point he slugs duck for, you know, for fucking his shit up to which Doug responds by like, okay, I'm going to give Leo one final clue so he can find your ass. You should have been nicer to me. And it finally all comes to a head where, you know, Donald ends up getting the papers. I mean, um, uh, uh, Leo ends up getting Bill's papers so that Bill can't leave the country, which forces a confrontation with them. Um, we find out that Bill had actually, you know, killed his, his baby mama, Leo's girlfriend, and she had been, you know, kind of dead the whole time. Leo finds her body, which is kind of makes, you know, he has this final confrontation with Bill, um, uh, with a, a, a great moment, uh, you know, which reminded me it wasn't as, it wasn't as poignant, I think, because it was, you know, bill dying but it reminded me of you know for me the hardest to watch scene from saving private ryan when the guy slowly gets a heart a, a knife pushed into his heart you know so bill gets a knife pushed into his throat slowly it's all it's also almost as bad as the scene in uh john wick um but you know so again also i think this is the first time we ever see paul rudd's character get killed ever in a film i don't know of any other paul rudd movie where he's been killed so so we get to um uh, you know, and, and this has a very, uh, very much a feeling like this is the end of the film. We have the confrontation between Leo and, um, and, and Bill and Bill ends up dying. And we kind of think like, okay, well, at least there's some sort of resolution. But then, you know, before that Bill had locked his daughter up in her room. So she's safe. And Donald sees this and he's like, Oh buddy, you know, you should have been nicer to me, takes his keys and goes up and takes the girl. And you're like, Holy shit, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Um, but then luckily he also decides he wants to fuck with Leo a little bit more. So he implants this artificial voice box because he wants Leo to be able to speak and apologize for killing his friend, which is also fucked up because duck also like let his friend die so that he could kind of take his daughter, but now he's still angry at Leo for killing his friend. So, you know, Duck is a very kind of 
fucked up complex character. And then, you know, his whole thing is, you know, he, yeah, he's angry at Leo for killing his best friend and he wants him. But I think he also maybe had a thing for, for Leo's girlfriend too. Cause it was like, you know, his best friend's girl kind of thing. And so it's also like, okay, you jealous about that too. And then, um, in a great moment. Oh, see, this is the thing about this film. There's so many little details running through and I've forgotten little details that actually are so significant towards the end, uh, is that he, through the whole film, he's been taking these long, like swimming, you know, he'll go to this pool and he'll be able to swim the whole length of like this Olympic size pool in one breath. And he's, you know, kind of practices, you know, breathing. And we see him doing this. We see every time he needs to calm down, He'll take a huge breath and just like chug a giant mug of water. And that's sort of like his thing. So at the end of the film, as Duck is about to throw him off a bridge into the water, he takes a huge breath, grabs Duck, like squeezes all the air out of him, and then just throws them both in the water and holds on to Duck until he drowns. But Leo's fine because he's been holding his breath, you know, his whole life. So he just swims to the top. And you have this touching moment where. Uh, the the daughter kind of co- I mean yeah the, the the girl comes to the edge and and he has to like use his voice to tell her you know no stay back it's dangerous and we hear him speak for the first time in the whole film and you know then he ends up kind of coming out of the water and saying oh we're going to take you to your grandmother's house she misses you and you you see and and throughout this whole film it's so hard to imagine any kind of resolution but but you actually you actually get one there's this okay well you know it sucks kind of that Leo lost his his love, but like he gets to kind of see that, you know, through, you know, when she talked about another person, Oh, it was her daughter. And, you know, and he gets to kind of participate in saving her. And, you know, and that was one of the things I wondered at first too, is like, Oh, is he going to end up like taking her and raising her? But it's like, Oh no, she still has family. And, you know, there's still this, um, you know, it's not this weird sort of like, yeah, are people going to wonder where this girl went that this guy has? But, um, but yeah, you know, the, the, the two shitheads end up dying. So you're kind of happy about that. And, and the girl is safe and she's taken away from duck, you know, and, and taken back to, to what family she has left. Um, but yeah, and it was great. And by the, by the end of it, I remember thinking like, you know, and I'm not, I'm not as much of a noir expert, but I was like, okay, I know Scott likes noir and, you know, and, and, you know, he's, he's got to be into interested in seeing this. So I was like, that was part of what made me kind of think like, I've got to bring this to the podcast, you know? And, um, you know, especially cause there were things about it that reminded me of Blade Runner. So I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, if, if, if Scott will appreciate those things or if it's like, oh, if it's going to look like a cheap ripoff of Blade Runner or, you know, just kind of how they play with the, um, the, the noir genre of like, okay, you know, it wasn't an actual detective, but it was a guy who was looking for a missing girl. I was like, that seems pretty, like pretty straightforward. So, so yeah. So like, it was, it was just great in and of itself, but it, I feel like it made it, it was a, a, a perfect thing to bring to the podcast. And yeah. And it was back in 2018, I guess when it came out soon after it came out was when I watched it and I've been waiting this whole time. And it's like, yes, finally we can bring it to the podcast. Very nice. Thank you. And, Thank you for bringing it. Yeah. Do we want to do first impressions from the rest of the group? Yeah. Zeke, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is one of those <laughs> this is one of those conversations where I'm uh, more looking forward to the conversation just because I'm I'm still not sure where I landed with this one. Um, I think. Would like you rather you... have someone else start off? I mean, it's too late now. <laughs> no, it's, it's <laughs> all good. Yeah, I mean, I've even revised some of what I was thinking just from Tim's description. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that's, that is the point of the podcast, that we get For more sure. of this experience with each other, right? So yeah. it's up to you. 
Yeah, I'll keep going. I, that's one thing I was okay. going to say is yeah, that hearing please. Tim talk through it, um, even then it sounded cooler, right? Then I think it actually played out on screen for me. And I don't know what that disconnect was. Um, I think first impressions are, I, I typically love those sorts of movies where you've got um, two separate paths that are, you're following a little bit of this person, a little bit of that person, and then they come together. Um, and I, you know, I mean, you knew throughout the movie that they would come together some way. I just feel like there were times where they felt so distant that by the time it did come together, I don't want to say it was anticlimactic, but it was also like, I think there was just too much time building that, you know, convergence that I was, you know, by the time it got to the, the joining of, of, uh, Bill and Leo that I was just like, okay, that was, that was it. Um, but I don't know, hearing about, hearing you talk about some of the other details that they laid earlier on in the movie that seemed small that I didn't really think about the kind of impact of the ending and that convergence, um, you know, that's already kind of shaped what I was thinking too. Um, I'm going to save some of this for later. I, I think, uh, I don't know. There was a lot of it too, that I just didn't, you, didn't get why it was there. Right. I, I mean, I get that he's mute, but I don't know that his muteness showed up as much as, as it, it seemed like it would. I get that he was Amish, but when did it matter that he was Amish aside from, you know, not getting the surgery? Like, I think there could have been more, to do with exploring an Amish guy in the future, but it felt like he was just Amish when it mattered for what little point they were trying to get across, you know, in any given scene. Um, I did like the futuristic visuals and things like that. Um, especially early on, I think one of my, uh, not to jump into favorite scenes, but I did really like how the movie started um, and just the colors used and the visuals used. And then he dives into the pool and you've got the 30 years later, um, on the backdrop, uh, on the water. I thought that was really nice looking. Um, I love the score. Uh, but yeah, just for me, I think there were just different aspects of it that I didn't leave feeling great about, or didn't leave feeling like, Oh, what a big twist or what a cool aha moment. It was just more kind of down the middle for me. Um, and another thing too, when you were talking about Paul Rudd's character, I don't know, I was torn there too, because you know, such a shitty person. Uh, Duck was shittier. Um, you know, you get under the the pedophilia subplot and Bill discovering that. And I thought that was going to be a huge twist moment. He was going to go John Wick and beat his ass or something. And then he kind of was just like, oh, my thing is more important, right? My papers are coming and we're cool. Let's go, you know, right on the town. Doesn't matter that you're a pedophile. Doesn't matter that you know, you've had contact with my daughter and I just told you to stay away because I'm getting what I want. So let's hang out some more. I would have rather obviously <laughs> him beat the shit out of the pedophile or like solve that in some different way. I know that drastically changes the movie that changes the ending that changes a lot of things, but, and I know you're not really supposed to, like you said, right. The two bad guys die in the end. You're not supposed to like Bill either. I just wish that I could have. And so there was that conflict of it felt like it was Paul Rudd being Paul Rudd being a villain. Um, so I couldn't quite bring myself to hate him. I thought he did a good job of being a villain, but he was also goofy and didn't really follow through on the bad guyness a lot of the time. So there were some things that I was struggling with his character too. Um, so again, one that I didn't fall in love with uh, when I was watching it, but one that I didn't absolutely hate either. I'm kind of just stuck. So I'm excited to, talk through it and see where I sway based on what we all have to say. 
Nice. Yeah, thank you. Joel? I mean, a, a lot of the same for me, actually. Um, I don't know if it's just like Netflix movies have all Netflix sci-fi things have the same like filter on them. Same kind of generic lens flary super. So that, that kind of temper and like the idea of like somebody growing up Amish and then kind of turning into almost like this technological dystopia is such a great premise. I also went into the movie thinking Paul Rudd was the main character because he's the fucking face of every fucking image of it too. So like, that threw me off, and it's like, who's this generic white man who doesn't say anything the whole movie except for the end? So that was a little jarring. Um, I did really like the premise, right? Like a uh, somebody who grew up without technology in the most technologically advanced of of futures. I thought that was a really interesting premise. I don't know that you wouldn't adapt in in way like the the volumes of the library thing just seemed really contrived it didn't seem I, I, it was it was it felt really disjointed um pacing wise to me it just felt like we jumped from thing to thing and we didn't get really a backstory on the mute but i guess the mute is not the way leo um <laughs> let's not well at one point they call him the mouth which i thought was great like a great like gangster uh, 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 um, nickname like Leo the Mouth. That's a great fucking name for a mute body man. Which he had, and it also we didn't really explain why he was good at killing these people and fighting. Like he's just Amish. He's not super powered. And I don't know if it's another like. I feel like ten minutes after A Quiet Place came out, Netflix greenlit Bird Box, and I think this is in the, the keeping with the tra- tradition of. Oh, let's base something around uh, a differently abled st- lifestyle or not life, but like life experience. It just seemed, I don't know. It came out about that time, 2018. And it came out with the same kind of wash of like Future Man and Altered Carbon and Upgrade. It all had that kind of, uh, uh, that's kind of what I was expecting. I haven't seen any of those other ones, but I'm now wondering if I would like those. Um, it, <sighs> we spend a lot of time knowing that that dude is a pedophile and it's really fucking obvious that that guy is a pedophile and he it's written that he's worse but paul rudd's character is worse for like letting him fucking live at i don't know like i don't know if i'm just like at a plate where place where i cannot abide even the idea of pedophilia i know it happens it's fucking abhorrent and to watch it for that long in a movie and it to be a plot point where I knew the second the girl was in the room, that was going to be bad news bears. And it was just really uncomfortable and not entertaining to watch that play out. And I, I mean, I think the thing that really saves this, well, that saves it, but like the, the shining light of, I think Paul Rudd as a villain is great. I like that standout performance. I like him playing against type. And I, I, Zeke, I did have the same feeling where he was being goofy, but he, there's a very big, like, manipulative, abusive way he was playing it. And it might have, if we'd seen any interaction with him and the girl, do we know what the girl's name who got fridged? I knew in the first fucking frame that girl was going to get fridged. Nadira. And everybody know what fridged means? It's the comic book trope where Green Lantern's girlfriend got put in the fridge and died. 
Yeah. Um, I she knew was she was already dead. Wasn't she? Wasn't she in pieces when she went in the fridge? Yeah. yeah. But the, 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 the TV trope being fridged is a girl killed for the uh, uh, character development of another character mm-hmm. to give them a reason to do the story. Um, the character is the corpse, not right. the person. Yeah. Right. And how the corpse affects the man typically. Um, so if we had seen any interaction between Nadira and Paul Rudd's character, we might've seen a little bit more of that, like overbearing, manipulative, abusive partner or ex-husband with a kid step that thing. If we had seen a little bit more of that, that kind of moving to the joke to be goofy is more of like, a. uh, trying to in, uh, be endearing as a manipulation tactic. I, I, I rec, I, as, as we were talking about it, that more kind of fit with me because th- those moments didn't really make sense in the moment. But as I'm looking back and as you discover how shitty a guy he is, and that's really why he, he kind of allows, he goes drinking with the pedophile afterwards is, it it doesn't serve his purpose to to stab him at that moment. He's trying to get out. Let's not leave a corpse in a, an investigation. I I imagine. So I think like part of that portrayal is so much about using people and manipulating them to your own ends. And I I think when he has like the knife in people's face and like he he's kind of unhinged, like it's a really breakout performance for me. I'm I was really impressed by those aspects of it. Um. But overall, I, 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 it just it, it missed the mark for me. I, it was just really disjointed. That was really, and it, having seen Moon, same director, right? Same, he wrote Moon too, right, Tim? I think so. So I, I don't know what happened because Moon is this, Moon is this other thing, and it, it's it's not as disjointed. Um, and I, maybe there's something to what you were saying, Tim, about the idea that like the disjointed narrative structure is a representation of how it would feel to be Amish in this world. Maybe I, but it, it, that didn't really land for me. So just for your answer, Joel, for Moon, he has story by Duncan Jones, but screenplay by someone else, Nathan Parker. For Mute, story by Duncan Jones, and then he shares screenplay by Duncan Jones and Michael Robert Johnson. That's right. Just for specificity there. I did really like the Moon reference. I was like, oh shit, I know what that is. (laughs) Um, I forgot how much of a spoiler it was. Like, I remember there being the Moon reference on a TV, but I, I remember after being like, oh, you don't have to watch Moon, but then I was like, oh fuck, if they watch this, then watch Moon, they're gonna know what's up when they watch Moon. Nobody ask any questions about that because eventually I'd like to yeah. watch Moon. Forget this. Don't listen to this episode. Right. <laughs> just, just the people on the, on the podcast don't listen yeah. to this episode. Right. I mean, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen Moon, and I don't. I remember one scene with a television, but don't remember what was on the television. So, okay, good. I guess that's good, good for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Scott, what are your first impressions? I think contrived and disjointed are good words i think i might have said underbaked there's a lot of really good ideas here that just just they're, they're this close this close to coming together perfectly and they just don't quite um paul rudd is incredible right uh alexander skarsgård was great too honestly just in his entirely visual performance right 
just to throw yeah the actors all the cast killed it right even the minor characters um the world was really interesting the world building the setting the plot is absolutely noir or neo-noir tim great yeah i agree we talked about how fuzzy the the neo part of that can be but it's great i love all the twisty little bits and the things that get revealed but the twists i didn't quite i didn't quite engage emotionally with either the characters or the plot. And I don't know if that's because we could have spent more time getting to know the characters intimately. Maybe that would have fixed both those issues. Like like when he finds out his girlfriend is dead, when when Ryan Gosling gets his little AI buddy killed, right, in 2049, and there's that scene afterward where he gets rescued by the like underground replicant group, and he's sitting there with all the bandages and the look on his face like the bandages are nothing compared to the emotional despair rolling off of him right and i feel it here when skarsgård was sitting under the tree with her corpse looking at the video of them i almost felt it but not quite i was so close and i get it maybe that's just me i don't know we're there's a lot of good you know and it just didn't quite land and i i do have good things i want to go into more detail about later for sure but I so so yeah like I, I there are bad movies this is not a bad movie I want to be clear right I don't know if I'd call it you know great but good good movie right but I cannot abide the Amish depiction in this at all this is exploitative in it that's the most generous way I can put it I I've always said this three times I hate it I hate it I hate it which is not uncommon. I don't think there's any film ever that has not had a really terrible and inaccurate depiction of the Amish. I think the closest, closest, best, quote unquote, least worst was Witness, um, where our Harrison Ford detective spends time living with the Amish and then falls in love. And even that has its problems, right? But who boy. So the film began with that. And that was a huge hole for it to climb out of for me just personally. Um, so my mom grew up in Berks County, Pennsylvania, which is also the location of the first Amish settlement in the New World, Berks County. There's still a large Amish population out there. So she's, she grew up with them as a presence, you know, not enough to like have regular friends in the community that she spoke to, but she's interacted with them, been in places with them, you know, so that's admittedly not a lot of Amish experience, but it's way more than most people. Um, and God help me, it's, it's you know, an extremely poorly represented and misunderstood community, right? So I obviously that's something I picked up on and none of you did, which is fair. I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to indict any of you for your lack of understanding. There I'd be, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Please, no, please. I'd, I'd just be curious to see if the German Amish population is different. I don't know if there is an Amish population in Germany. I wasn't sure, and there's that news clipping at the start in his apartment that says Chancellor invites Amish to return to Germany because they needed an excuse for them to be in Germany. I'm not sure. There might still be. They did come from those regions historically, right? That's where the term Pennsylvania Dutch comes from because Dutch, Deutsch, Deutsch for German, right? right? It was a little linguistic crossover. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, there's a lot of variation within the Amish community. So I'm not going to sit here and just say this was completely wrong. You know, I... Just as a quick reference, um, you know, depending on how strict or not strict the various communities are, they might use tractors instead of instead of animals for farming, 
right? Right. There's a lot of variation. So, so they had a motorboat in the front end of this movie, right? Oh, well, I thought that was some other like other kids rolling around on the same lake, and they yeah, had. Yeah, see, that, I didn't. Boy. I didn't get that the first time I saw that. That only occurred to me the second time that he yeah. was just in the water, and the boat happened to come by. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But all sorts of other bits are like the clothes he's wearing are not Amish clothing, right? They looked old, but like. Again, I guess depending on the community, they wouldn't have worn that because the buttons would have had to be made with factory machines. They're too small. And lots of real Amish communities wouldn't wear that. They'd have worn handmade clothing. Right? But again, I, there are probably Amish who do wear clothing like that, right? There's plenty I'm, of variation. So I just, I'm also curious with the time eh. jump, how much leeway. I, I, I think the Amish are meant to stand yeah, in part for a religious community that says no to modern medicine i think more than right. an accurate right. portrayal of that that is what the stand-in is meant to be i didn't have as much i agree that, but which yeah. was frustrating to me yeah. because you could have just done that without you know stealing the amish culture for that if that makes sense right like right. um but i so again there's variation right there are some amish who are less strict there's even that conversation in the coffee shop where the coffee shop guy asks him Oh, are you strict? You turned away from the television. So I, for all I know, this is far enough in the future that there's a semi-strict Amish community that he's a part of that uses, wears wristwatches and factory-made clothing and et cetera, right? But that, that the film opened with that and it bothered me and it just, I couldn't get rid of it for the rest of the film. So for me in the I'm, beginning, I'm trying to, <laughs> I, that's why I said, I think the rest of the film comes so close and Maybe if that hadn't been bothering me, the film would have done it for me. I don't know. But it's really think... hard for me to have a movie that starts the exact same way that Sleepaway Camp does. Like, you have to be working to lose my interest after that point. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's essentially think... the same, same start. I think my biggest single issue with it, though, is that all of the things that being Amish contributed to the plot or story were plot. Either, or either well yeah like like they needed him to be unfamiliar with technology but then the only times that ever hinders him are the two times he has to speak into a machine because he's not allowed to type what he wants to say which felt really weird where we already solved that problem today with all of our touchscreen kiosks and fast food restaurants like a and then b like it just gets fixed immediately in the one case by the guy who just speaks the number for him like, he wasn't going to do that again. He didn't ask because he's a loner, question mark. Like, I, he didn't write in his pad for help from some other library guard. I don't know. Like, right? Like, that would have been a really excellent thing for his character to struggle with constantly throughout. And instead, it's instantly whisked away under the rug all but once. <laughs> right? Um, they, like, he's supposed to be unfamiliar with technology, but he picks up that phone damn quick. And the texting, and he shows well, he had an no owner's manual. He could read. True, and he shows no <laughs> reluctance either. There's no like, you know, like maybe there's the hint from when the girlfriend says, "Oh, I just bought you one. It's the oldest one I can find." But again, like, unless they're making up some new future Amish community, he shouldn't have used that at all, right? Like, it should have been a conversation about, you know, giving up his way of life or not using the phone right they shouldn't i don't know i i just like just bothered I, me we didn't know enough about him as a person i think right. that like and right. that's there is a noirish trope where the person the, the the detective with no like, they always have a name but like from nowhere they just happen mm-hmm. into this this universe in this this weird world but like 
The thing about noir protagonists is that you know them instantly. And then his struggles came from the things we didn't know about him, I guess. Right. We didn't have enough of a basis to say, okay, this is how he interacts. This is a challenge to his faith. How does he really feel? There's no family influence. The one we really see is like there are Amish people getting off of the bus as he's going by to see uh, Nadari. Is that right? Nadira. Nadira. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, I admit that shot with him with the wooden bedpost and the other thug picks up the metal leg, like... That was just as ham-fisted as the rest, but I loved it, to be fair. <laughs> it was a great visual. But it was, again, I almost felt like they, they drew that concept sketch first and then went, why is our character using wood? Let's make them Amish. They make furniture. And that was the end of the conversation, right? Or similarly, like, we need a, char- a character who has a fixable disability. I don't know if fixable is kind of a rude word. I apologize. Uh, you know, a disability that medical science can treat, but for some reason he hasn't bothered who hates technology? Yeah, let's do the Amish. And like, I doesn't, it doesn't feel like they started with an Amish character for me. Again, I'm only viewing one subset of the Amish that my mother dealt with mm. more than I did. So I'm not remotely an authority, right? But from where I'm coming from, that was my struggle with the film. And we'll, I'll, I'll shut up now. We'll move on. But so setting that aside, there was a lot of really good. Yeah, the setting was great. The cast was excellent. And like I said, I, I could feel the the seeds see them growing like that moment under the tree with when he was holding her and watching the video. Right. I just didn't quite make it over the hill. Um, and I do. I, I, I Tim, how are now. you I, feeling? I have a lot of good. I promise to him. I promise. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's fine. I mean, I didn't, I didn't make the film, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, uh, you're certainly not going to claim that you did now. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, you know, and, and, Part of it too, and not not to be like making an excuse for it, is I feel like I also enjoyed it better the second time because like, and I think this this kind of adds to what what you guys were saying is that I, I feel like there was a lot of stuff I missed the first time through, and this may be because of how like disjunct it was, where, um, you know how sometimes it's like I feel like there are some yeah some movies you watch and you're like yeah whatever like point a to point b some movies it's like you almost have to know how to watch this kind of movie and i feel like there was a lot of stuff i lost the first time through because it like i wasn't necessarily expecting mm-hmm. you know how paul rudd's character was going to subtly tie in you know and and you know a lot of the 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 noir tropes i kind of picked up along the way as opposed to going into it being like this is a noir film so i'm looking for these parts and how they're going to converge and whatever um and i think um yeah, and I think maybe a lot of it too is, you know, kind of like what, what Scott was saying, that there were a lot of pieces that were really good. And I think the first time I watched it, when there were parts of it that lost me, I attributed it to my own kind of confusion or I, I must have missed something. You know, I, I think I assumed that that the, the film had given me given me everything I needed and I just didn't catch it, you know, where maybe, oh, maybe the problem was with the film. Maybe like, you know, it wasn't that I missed something. It was that things weren't made clear enough. Um, so I think that was part of it. And like watching it the second time, kind of knowing how things are playing out and catching things because I know to look for them. Um, it, it did seem to make a little more sense, but not, not necessarily that it's that, you know, oh, it was flawless the second time I saw it, you know, it's, you know, um, yeah, I can see some of those things. And, and, and again, uh, uh, sometimes, and again, not to, to make it where like, 
uh, I, I want to make excuses for the, for the film and explain things away, but some of the things you guys were saying, I was kind of like, okay, well, I think I had explained that away in my head. Like with Paul Rudd, the way the, I think the reason his character was sometimes like goofy is like, number one, he was a father. And I think he, he seemed to be as, as, <laughs> as well as he could given the world and the life he had, he seemed to be a decent father. Like, like his daughter seemed to, to, to like him, to not yeah. be scared of him. Absolutely. So I think some that of the brilliant. goofiness, yeah, came from him being a dad. Um, and then on top of that, I there think there was this question of whether he was going to be our, our second protagonist for a long right. part of the plot before yeah. we start to see the parts that are like, Ooh, you know, the, the cherry on top is kind of the scene in the mall with the peanuts, right? right. Yeah. Where now he's not doing this like, because he's working for the mob and has no choice if he wants to get his passports or because right. other people are like to protect his, his daughter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. That yeah. was the turning point and that was brilliantly done. Yeah, for sure. And and that's what I liked about it. Too. You know, I mean, I referred to him right off the bat as the villain, but, but, you know, people aren't people, you know, it's not black and white like that. People aren't actually villains. They're people, they're varying degrees of, yeah, of, of selfishness and how far they're willing to go and, or yeah, being an asshole for the sake of being an asshole. And I think through a good part of it, yeah, you're just kind of like, Oh, is he just that selfish and that much kind of focused on his own ends that he will do these shitty things, but maybe he's not a shitty person. And I I feel like that was the point was to keep you guessing, like to kind of still make him still kind of likable so that you weren't watching it from the beginning, like rooting against him. You know, you're kind of like, oh, well, he just he wants to get out of the country, which is illegal. But but he's got a daughter. And I, you know, and I, I almost wonder if that was the bait and switch they were trying to do to get you to root for him taking his daughter out of the country without realizing, oh, fuck, him wanting to do that is what made him the villain, made him kill her. And, you know, and then just like, oh, shit, you know, um, which, again, you know, yeah, if, if the, the movie the process of the movie didn't tie those things together in such a way that was impactful as it meant to be that it's like, well, yeah, the movie failed then, you know? Um, but, um, you know, I think for, you know, for me, you know, the reasons why, why I enjoyed it was maybe, yeah, maybe I was connecting too many things myself that, that I shouldn't have been doing that much work. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't, it should have been the movie's job to connect those things for me. You know, I, I did love the Paul Rudd, the, that bait and switch there for mm-hmm. sure. Um, I didn't feel like he was goofy unnecessarily. I wouldn't have applied that word. You know, mm. there, we saw humor, like you said, for, for his daughter, right? Or for that yeah. sort of thing. And I loved this, the, the extra bait and switch of his, of Duck being mm-hmm. like, we learned that he's pedophile earlier on, but Paul Rudd doesn't. And maybe he was kind of blind to it because he was just being selfishly concerned about, obsessed with his daughter's situation. Maybe he was just, ascribing things to something else maybe he just wasn't looking that closely because duck was his friend from the service or like joel said maybe he's being manipulated it's i love that we don't know you know can we also talk about the the damn dynamic between paul rudd and the pedophile they kept calling each other babe yeah were they a couple at one point like i don't understand what that relationship was so yeah so i i think a lot of what that was was you you notice something off about duck and mm-hmm. I feel like, oh, are we supposed to think maybe he's in love with Bill? And that's sort of going to provide tension because Bill wants to leave. And so I, I kind of like attributed that to like maybe, and I don't know that I heard Paul Rudd saying it as much as 
Duck did. Maybe well, they, maybe he they did. walk through the the mall holding hands, and then well, yeah, uh, at that point, that was to Paul mess with does the like guard, I think, right, yeah. but he also does like this camp gay voice right as well. So I don't I I don't know. Like I yeah. still, it seemed yeah, like that was a dynamic that they were working with. I don't know. It, it, that was it's another funny like you confusing backstory I, thing. I liked that that element of confusion because it felt purposeful, meant to keep us guessing about the character's true nature. That was great until I realized it was a pedophile. Where I I felt like I just needed more info, you mm-hmm. know, different pieces here and there. Um, I mean, I speaking of the of duck, right? Like. This is my last mention. I'm sorry. I they they could have just they could have had him not get his corrective surgery as a child for any number of reasons. They could just be generally suspicious of technology. They could be poor. They could be in an isolated rural area. The medical technology could have just not been there yet. Like um, during that first creepy, etc. Right during that first creepy scene with the young girl patient with the prosthetic leg the the mom slash sister you know the older woman who brought the girl there says something about like how surprised they were at the high quality of the operation yeah. because duck is apparently incredible like he's he's like world class right better than anyone else so maybe he just had something special he was working on or had the skill to fix him at the end like you know there were other ways for them to achieve that result okay i'm done done with the amish thing <laughs> Um, I, you're, the rest of the characters felt more background. Like, like what you said, well, well, like what you said about you, I liked certain parts of the, the duck cactus thing because they kept me guessing and it felt like on purpose. Right. But then with a lot of our background characters, you know, the British dudes or the club owner, they were kind of paper thin, but they were supposed to be, they should have been right. We, our plot does not need them to. We don't need to know what the mob boss does in his spare time. We just need to know that he's the jerk mob boss who's putting the screw story character for money. Great. But something about, like, the the guy that Nadira was living with and, like, the brothel owner who just kept showing up, right, and, and certain other major players felt like they could have – they deserved an in-between, right? They weren't the paper characters of the mob boss or whatever but they obviously weren't the main characters, but then they were treated like paper-thin characters. And I think that's where a lot of the the characterization fell short for me. Um, you know, Cactus has that whole relationship with the military police sergeant, right? I guess bribing him, you know, he sends him that envelope at the start, and then later they have that conversation where the police sergeant is like, you know, your ex-wife is very interested in seeing you get caught, but they're obviously not arresting him even though they know he's AWOL. So there's some kind of understanding there. And like they used that to set up why he's doing what he's doing and probably why he got rid of his wife too. But then like, who's this sergeant? They've clearly been dealing with each other for a long time. And he hasn't been arrested yet, but he's not working for the sergeant on the side. He's working for the club owner mob boss on the side. So what's happening there? And then the sergeant, like, we get one scene where Cactus drives past him and glances at him and then keeps track, and then we just never see him again, right? And compared to the the ups and downs we got between Cactus and Duck, you know, that I was left wanting more in that regard. You know, I, I'm thinking like what would have I don't know, gotten me I, I keep thinking about this in comparison to like Pulp Fiction, in terms of like a disjointed narrative and 
I think the other thing, like with the the flashback when we when we realize right that Paul is is has killed her, like we get that flashback of her from her POV in the bag, seeing him and then him like uh, uh, drugging their drinks and that whole bit. Like I almost wish that they had played with time more because I feel like the disjointed nature of the narrative might have been to its credit had we had kind of more of a back and forth in terms of realization or like, I don't know, like something instead of like trying to fix a disjointed thing, make it more disjointed and then like have that be more of an intentional, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to solve the Rubik's cube of it in my head. And it's just, I would dial back the pit. I I don't, I, the, the pedophilia thing is just, and we're going to put another trigger warning on this, this discussion. Tim, you're rapidly becoming the trigger warning uh, film guy. Like I, there was a little much of that, a little much. There was maybe too, there was, I think there was too much of that earlier in the film, but I, it works for the ending because I, I loved the ending. I loved that Ducky, I keep wanting to call him Ducky, just Duck. Duck sort of emerges at the end as potentially a way worse monster than anybody else we've seen throughout the entire film. Right. Because without Cactus sort of keeping him in check and his like luxurious life of hedonism, he's like gripping onto these other desires that he hasn't wanted. And that's why him turning the camera on the stairs was so sinister. It's and fucking sinister. And, I, I won't. And like... we didn't need as much overt setup earlier as we did, right? We, you know, we got like six different instances of. Ah, look how pedophilic he is. Look how pedophilic he is. Look how pedophilic. we could have used two of them, right? But I agree completely, Joel. That was it was off-putting. But then, yeah, at the end, God, that was so sinister. The car ride was so sinister. The way his voice changed, the body language, all of that was beautiful. And then building to the conclusion in the water was a phenomenal payoff. And admittedly, I'm. I'm a little annoyed that they gave Leo back his voice because I was kind of hoping that they would prove that he didn't need it, right? Mm -hmm. That he's like just as much a person without. But I like that him finding, you know, he refused to speak for Duck, right? And instead he spoke when he wanted to for the good of the girl after his like baptismal rebirth. It's really interesting that his first, his first words are a warning. Yeah. Which like he should have had, like he would, if he had been warned about the dangers of being in the water, Ooh, he might yeah. not have ever. Wa- like I really like think of that. I liked that moment. I really liked the the metaphor of that. His first words being a warning. I don't think that the I can hold my breath underwater thing. Pay, I rolled my eyes when he did that. I was like, okay, cool, drowning. Great way for the pedophile to go out. I am all the way here for it. But it just seemed like, why is this dude drinking water like this? He's he's drinking water like this See, again. That part, that's one then, part of Leo's characterization that worked for me because of his origin with the accident and because they set it up. I For me, it just seemed like we just did this to do this. Like, I, mm. I it didn't seem real. Like, why would he be doing that? That that's maybe that's just me. I don't think he sw- he swims twice, right? He three goes times. swimming. Tw- is it three times? Well, we- it's the opening present day shot, the shot while he's uh, holding on to the ledge, 
for a while and thinking, and then the third shot, he screams into the air filter, right? Okay, okay, that's right. The scream was great. That was that was amazing. What I was going to mm. like, I don't really think I, I don't think I connected that he was doing the length of the pool in one breath. I don't know that that connected to the chugging water thing for me. So by the time it came around, I was like, okay, this dude chugs water. It did take so me to the good. third time. Yeah. So maybe and, that's just me, but like, and, but again, a great way about, for him to go out. Well, about like, I, I kind of explained that last bit in my head as I, I thought he was just going to die with him. Oh, right. He's just ready. Right. Said so I I don't know, maybe he was maybe he wasn't I definitely ascribed that. The film didn't necessarily do it on its own, so I I see where that was was jarring. Yeah. Let's talk about favorite scenes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was I was just going to add a few more comments about the whole yes. water aspect of For it. Sure. And again, Please. this could be me reading into the stuff and not necessarily what the intent of the movie was. So, so this I wanted to with... like it. Let, I I didn't come yeah, no, in the, like yeah. cinema sins that oh, I, I really didn't like i was really excited to see it i, I just so um part of one of the things i noticed in in the opening scene so like yeah the first time i saw it i thought that was his family that he was on the boat with right mm. um but then like yeah like kind of noticing like kind of knowing what his deal was and seeing like first of all kind of how fancy the boat was and i feel like there was something about their clothes is that i think he was just in the water and and when you see him floating like his his eyes are open and i'm not convinced that it was because he was like doing a dead man's float like part of me was al- almost wondering like is was he just kind of like oh like like so so at home in the water so at peace in the water when this happened that it wasn't like oh i'm kind of like you know dead cuz you know he and then again we don't see him blink so maybe i'm way off about that but the fact that he still goes back in the water, I feel like that would have been something much more typical of that is that, oh, he was scarred by this experience and he won't go near the water. And then he has to go in the water at the end to do the big thing. Right. But the fact that he made a regular point of going swimming, like that, that kind of to me spoke volumes about his character that like he was just so comfortable and at home in the water that it wasn't, it wasn't something that he was able to connect as part of the trauma of his, his injury. Um, and you know, the fact that, that, um, you know, him, it, it was almost a common thing for him. Cause when he first tries to use the phone and he can't figure it out and he gets frustrated, he stops, goes to, you know, takes his deep breath, chugs a glass of water and then comes back to it, takes out the manual and starts going through it more methodically. Mm. And again, that was a scene that I didn't really notice the significance of that the first time, but how it was how calming water was to him and, and how, you know, it's seemingly to be such an important part of his life, even though like that's where he was when he had this like horrific injury. So, uh, so I don't know exactly what that says about his character, but I think it says something about his character that like, I like it. Yeah. you know, I like that, that it, idea was, too. it was still, yeah, still this, this, this womb for him. Um, and I think you see that if you like the first time I think he chugs water is when he's about to go to work. <laughs> I think, which could also be like, okay, I'm about to leave the confines of my apartment, which is this kind of world within a larger world that I've created for myself. Okay, I've got to go to work now. I've got to go into this loud, noisy, bright place with a bunch of assholes and alcohol and all this stuff. Okay, I got to drink, chug my water. Okay, I'm ready for it. You know, that's kind of how he centers himself. Um, And I can't remember the third time he did it. Maybe it was before he was going to go confront Bill or something like that. But I remember there being another big moment where he does chug the water. Um, so, 
so so again like it i i think it it did have a little bit more meaning. Um, and like I said, it's only because I've sort of attached that significance of like, oh, he should be afraid of the water, but he's not. It's actually a calming thing for him. And I think that's also what made the scream scene so much more poignant is that this is where he's supposed to go to get like leveled off again. And, and he can't like there's so much pent up in him that that doing his laps isn't helping him. Like it's only that sort of like silent scream that's kind of going to release what he needs to release. And, you know, this kind of sense of like, oh, the, the one thing of peace he has is not providing him peace anymore. So that was kind of one of the things for me, like with the whole, the you know, the water part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think also, I guess another part of that too, that, you know, and again, this didn't have to be an Amish thing, but him, um, I think like with his family and, and, and how he was the way he was, I think was because like, he's not still living with his family. He has left his family That's fair, yeah. and he's living in the city, but he's kind of living on his own terms, which is this, this is what's left over uh, from the way I was raised and what I'm comfortable with but not, I didn't necessarily get that he was still doing it for the religious and cultural reasons. It was just like, this is the lifestyle I'm used to. And I'm going to do that because it's what I'm comfortable with. Not because I feel like a religious need to. And, and, and it I, like not, I like that know, a lot, actually. Yeah, and, and, and not to try to elevate it too much too, but it also reminded me when he started using technology, it reminded me of the Mandalorian where he's starting to question his beliefs and like, maybe I can take my helmet off in front of people if it's, there's a more important thing at stake and it's worth kind of letting go of this, this, this thing that I've kind of believed my whole life, but why am I still doing it and believing it? Um, so it had the element of that where it's like, okay, yeah, like I haven't used technology because I grew up without it. I don't feel as though I need it because I've lived without it and why start now? But it's like, Oh, I, I need to find my girlfriend. Like, okay this is a way I could potentially find her. I'm going to do it, you know? Um, so that's kind of more what I thought it was, the, you know, his sort of, his habits were more like just um, out of, yeah, out of habit, not out of a uh, core belief system. I like that a lot. And I'll admit my reaction was knee jerk. It, I just, it's something my mom has been pointing out to me for a long time <laughs> in all media. Right. Yeah. So it was immediate for me. I, I admit, yeah. I like that a lot. I, I think I'm going to choose your interpretation. I agree. Okay, I don't thanks. know that it was as effective for me. I, the Mandalorian was an excellent comparison. That whole, I can violate this tenet if it's in the service of the quest sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. I don't know that if I agree that Newt did it as effectively, but I, right, I like right. it. <laughs> You're right. I'm going to start. I'm going to keep looking at it with that. And I'm going to watch it again with that. Yeah, I want to do that. I want to watch it again with that perspective. Oh, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Favorite scenes. Zeke, we haven't heard from you in 45 minutes. <laughs> Your time starts now. That's what you get for going first and saying you didn't like it. <laughs> I want this podcast continue? to learn. <laughs> I wouldn't here say to anything. I'd listen. <laughs> I'm just shadowing this one. Um, it's an no, audit. I... You're auditing the class. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, let's see, favorite scenes. Um, I did like the scene where, and I'm going to need a refresher or some other thoughts on like where he was at the time, but the scene where he's at the restaurant and he sits at the counter kind of next to 
the daughter and like draws, you know, see, she's drawing and draws her little picture. And I think that has a nice payoff later. And that's kind of a sweet moment. Um, reminder though, like in that moment when he sat, ne- sat next to them, he didn't know who she was at that time. Right. Right. No, but that did, the, yeah. the group, did they know who he was? Yeah. Cause that or... was the, the, the pimp guy who was like mm-hmm. running girl, running girls on the sly from the, the one dude. Right. This is a very much like how I think of this plot because the one dude in the <laughs> like nobody stands out except the the two main guys in the pedophile. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but they knew him as the guy from the night, like the bartender. Okay, because he had made uh-huh. a stink, and that guy was enough of a, a a big deal there that he would have recognized him. I I think. Okay. Yeah, and he didn't. He knew them as well, right? Like kind of in passing. Yeah. Similarly. Okay. I did, you know, I like that moment as like establishing his character, um, I guess, and his intentions, right? And just, I don't know, just that interaction. Um, and he holds his own and you get to really see who he is when he slides her the picture and is, you know, again, I, I just think that had a really nice payoff at the end. So I like that one too. Um, and then I think just the setting for me, just in general, is another favorite scene. Like anytime there are these future set movies, I love seeing you know, the thoughts about what technology would look like or, um, you know, buildings or cars or, and, and um, you know, Joel, to your point earlier, I do think there are plenty of movies that have the same filter where it all kind of looks the same, but I did like, uh, I don't know, the flying cars were fun. And then, um, you know, interacting with the kiosk, the, the library thing, like that was pretty cool too. And the air delivery situations, um, just always love you know, a glimpse into the future through futuristic movies. So I like the setting a lot too, because the technology didn't feel as pervasive. Mm. I came away from the film thinking that that almost wasn't a sci-fi because it felt so much like today, Mm -hmm. right? I've been in nightclubs like that. I've seen decor like that. You see photos of like downtown Tokyo and the streets look the same. Like it's like, Times square, but with more neon instead of LCDs, right? (laughs) Like, like, but, at first that was sort of, I don't know if disappointing is the word, right? And I was like, oh, this isn't, this is like such a recognizable future. But then the more we went and the more little things came up that weren't recognizable, the more I was like, ooh, this feels like 10 years from now instead of a thousand years from now. And I right. just, it finally kind of clicked, you know, and came together really well. And it was cool that the tech wasn't sinister. It wasn't a dystopia at all. It was yeah. just a setting, which mm-hmm. which yeah. I kind of went in with that expectation with Moon. Because Moon seems... The tone of that whole movie is sinister and suspenseful. Mm-hmm. So, like, to to come back down to Earth and see that it's, it, it's just tech, like, <laughs> it's just yeah. the next progression of it was was really kind of cool you didn't have to worry about it you didn't have to worry about like the uh well who's suffering underneath all of this you kind of saw the different levels of the city and there's poverty and all Mm -hmm. of that stuff but it wasn't like metropolis you know Mm -hmm. like so that was i enjoyed that as well yeah the whole like the most advanced technology we see is like the flying cars and uh when he's at the drone meal place the employee has some kind of implant where his eyes right and he's playing the game but he's the only guy we ever see with that in any obvious way, I don't didn't notice anybody else making air gestures or anything, right? It's so like those were the again the seeds of the future, where everyone has the like HUD layover and the 
embedded phones like um like cactus had all that sort of thing like i could see the beginnings but except for those single moments it's otherwise all still there lots of the vehicles go by on on the street with regular wheels right not just the one weird car that was old to like look good but just lots of the regular vehicles they just have bodywork that looks futury but otherwise they're cars there are bikes and motorcycles and the clothing still looks recognizable like i i loved that that I've said before, maybe not on podcast, I really like the sci-fi of William Gibson. And a phrase I like is that he's really good at taking a plausible near future and then extrapolating that to his far future. And that's why his worlds feel so comfortable and plausible and lived in, right? Even though they're far future. Right. This movie felt like it was that near future. Like they found one of his a William Gibson timeline and to, went from the book, went 80% of the way back to present day and tore that section out and put it on their film. And it's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way to put that. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I got that from a YouTube channel called PBS idea channel. You may recall that. I don't know if any of you ever watched their video essays. No. Mm-hmm. My favorite scene was the, uh, the montage of him in the library on all the different levels and all of it. Mm. Also the bowling alley. I just remembered like the multi-tiered bowling alley where it kept like uh, zooming out and looked like, I don't know that that's a very sophisticated camera technique or sophisticated CGI. It just was really clever. I just, for some reason, this like like mega bowling plex was really cool to me. Um, There's also another favorite uh, moment. And I don't know that, I don't know if the effect was deliberate or if it was just how I, I interpreted it. But after the kind of confrontation with the pedophile, Paul goes to hug him. And then he, he talks to the club owner. And it almost sounds like he was wearing a wire the whole time and he's going to fuck this guy's shit up. But it's just how integrated the phone has become. And he just answered the phone call. So that like little moment, I don't know, like that momentary, like, oh shit, is he, is he flipping on the dude? And then it was, it was just, oh, I don't know, like that that technical technological integration and kind of like the awkwardness of like how easy it is to answer the phone in that really tense moment was really, I I liked that moment a lot because I didn't quite know what what the 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 motive was or what we were supposed to think that was. I also like too that I think the line he says is talk to me. And at first you think, Oh, is he asking his friend to open up to him and like, Oh, talk to me about you being a pet. But it's like, no, he switched gears. He's done with that. Like he, Oh, something that's going to help me. Yeah. Fuck you. I'm on the next thing. Yeah. So I like that they, they chose that phrase, I think to make it kind of ambiguous as far as like what was happening in that moment too. Yeah. I also thought it was funny. Like, I think the club owner's name was like Maxim, spelled like M-A-X-S-I-M. Yeah. And he keeps calling him Maxim. So which yeah. is like a very Americanized version of that. So I thought that, which made it confusing. So I'm like, who the fuck is he talking about? And I was like, <laughs> it took me a minute to like connect. Oh, that's the same person. Which I feel like sometimes when that happens in a movie, it irritates me. Because it's like, shouldn't you have a script supervisor making sure? But it's like, no, people pronounce things differently. So to have two different people pronouncing the same name different ways, I feel like that's more realistic in that sense, you know, and it made it made it irritating. It's like you're being such an American right now. Max. To, to harken back to Tarantino again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that like there's that one character who says our main character's name a certain way on purpose, right? That yeah. thought through like where does this character come from or how much do they respect the other character? 
or et cetera. Yeah. Right. Or like in Star Wars, the whole Han and Han thing, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, we yeah, only hear him Han. Yeah, and then yeah. we, yeah. And then we hear like, you know, you know, uh, uh, Calrissian's like, oh, Han. It's like, wait a minute. What the hell? <laughs> I was also thinking with the kind of like more humorous things that Paul says, like, I wonder if that was trailer bait. It's like, hey, let's get Paul Rudd saying mm-hmm. Paul Ruddian things. Right. And then we'll totally fuck up anybody who sees the trailer because they'll be expecting this fun-loving guy and see him as the most yeah. evil person that he's ever portrayed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was me. Like, the part, yep. the, the thing, he's like, oh, no soda. It was yep. like, that's hilarious. Paul Rudd, you're a treasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fuck you, Paul Rudd. <laughs> I like that just as a moment of parenting, right? As mm-hmm. either a serious thing or a dad joke. It just, it right. worked. Yeah. I like that he's yeah. leaving leaving the daughter with the hookers. Yes. But and then no, concerned no, about the sugar. No and sugar <laughs> and caffeine yeah. is the, right. the, where he's drawing the line. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, not, yeah, like, like, like not I, to have a stigma treats, about yeah. sex work, but like that environment for a child, not great. <laughs> like... Well, I like, too, that she's so normalized by it that she's just sitting there coloring. You know, she's not interested in what's going on around her. It's just like, yep, got the color things, you know, got to mm-hmm. do that. She's found the coping mechanism. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's great in a way, too, because, like, she she knows all of them. You know, so when he's like, oh, can you watch her? And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. Come on, sweetie. And it's like, so, I, yeah, I feel like, it, yeah, in that sense, that is a, a, a great part of, like, non-judgment on on the daughter that she's not like why are these people you know why why is she so glittery you know like why is she half naked it's just like oh okay these are my dad's friends that take care of me sometimes you know and i thought that that was like like an interesting way also to kind of put you know on the spectrum of like what's right and wrong in this film and it's like that felt very westerny to me yeah, uh, yeah you know the western yeah. town brothel that like mm-hmm. fiercely protects oh, its own and takes care of the kids yeah yeah, yeah. certainly Scott, did you have a favorite scene? Yeah, I've got a couple. The coffee shop scene um, was just great. It was a really great, like, chance passing of the two main characters. It was a great introduction to Paul Rudd's, like, generic assholiness, right? Another expansion on him as, like I said, we eventually learned that he's, you know, genuinely awful. But, like, it really lays the groundwork at first for just, oh, he's, like being a terrible customer but like he's also just i don't know it was that sort of swaggery like like gangster type assholeness right like almost i don't want to say endearing that's not the word but like it it connects us more to now we're a little bit more invested in him because he just had an interaction with the main character that was almost meaningless for the two of them and instead gave us a glimpse into him it was a great just a great handoff right between mm-hmm. perspectives and interests and it it was a really important piece in setting up the bait and switch of paul rudd as second protagonist nope whoops he's the antagonist ding um so that was really nice it was great because it made him recognizable right like he was playing the part of the the like the heavy in a certain mm-hmm. sense and it, that moment was great because you're like okay i know more about this guy from this scene and it drew more attention to him for leo too right yeah and it was a nice moment with the coffee shop guy asking leo about you know oh are you very strict just like you know like i mentioned the only explanation we get is that newspaper clipping right but 
and then of course we see some Amish getting off the bus, but they are here and they've been here long enough that they're kind of just a casual thing, but there aren't enough of them or they haven't been here long enough for people to be, to catch on immediately and be comfortable, right? Like we see later in the library. So those, those two scenes worked really well. And then my other favorite was when he orders the meal and follows the drone to her apartment because it was just such brilliant detective work. I was going to say earlier there, um, the ending and Leo's like secret buildup of his strength to do the thing in the water, like was a great reveal for me that the character is smart and not just fumbling his way through this unfamiliar world, but that he's really applying a considerable brain. The drone bit was another moment of that, you know, cause his last lead had gone dead or a conversation or whatever, like hadn't really led him anywhere. And he's like sitting there wondering what to do. And it's this great back to basics of, Oh, I've had in my hand this whole time something i can follow right he sees someone order and put in their phone number and he goes boom and and even though it doesn't pan out with the phone because tracking is off he makes the next connection and goes let's try the apartment i just i love that a lot that was a great little detective moment it was hard for me to watch because like with i don't know in in hindsight but also like in the moment i'm like for it to be so easy to track somebody's location. All I can see is ex-boyfriend, abusive boyfriend shit happening. Mm -hmm. Like it's like great detective work, but also could be used by shitty people to do further shadow of the future technology. Yeah. Yeah. Not quite dystopic, but still like how it felt connected to now because you can turn it off, but you have to actually turn it off at the same way that all our apps are tracking us. Unless you go into them and turn off all the save my data stuff. Like, yeah, so yeah. not quite dystopic, but also still, it's continuing the tradition of, hey, this this technology that's great and is useful is also scary. Comes with the potential <laughs> for abuse. Yeah. So that was great. So that was a great scene. And it was where we got the glimpse of the eye implants, right? And then the guy who helps him by speaking the number. So it was good. I liked that one a lot. And to be fair, I, as much as I loved the the bedpost robot leg showdown i just i know because that for me that was the moment we passed into camp and i was like see okay yes like we went from just sort of ham-fisted annoying to like goofy on purpose ham-fisted and i was like okay see i could get behind this all right see, <laughs> like yeah i i kind of yeah. rolled my eyes at that in the workshop and the whole thing but like he comes up it like it has a very like is he gonna go john wick like i felt like a lot of that edit like he's gonna just mow people down and he does it to be to be fair like the violence is very realistic in that it's just dudes there's nothing supernatural about it it's just how how you would fight right and for him to have this big shillelagh like club thing just beating people like i i don't know a, a little bit of an eye roll but also the campiness like i almost wish it had been camp earlier because then I yeah. could have just like turned my right. brain off and enjoyed it. It's just like, right. like if he had that through the whole movie and that yeah. was just like his thing is just, he's carrying around this, this club, yeah. like for like the instead entire... of whittling charms, he was just always working on the next part of the bedpost everywhere he went. Yeah. Is that your wizard staff? <laughs> Tim, what about you? Favorite scene? So um, I have a few. So one of, I think my first favorite scene is when she first like 
arrives to his apartment when she's kind of like, when he sees her like sitting on the floor and she tells him, you know, well, there's something, well, someone else and how he immediately is just like, Oh, you're leaving me. And like, you can see his eyes like welling up with tears, like instantly. And she's like, no, 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 of course not. And he was like, well, then, 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 you know, nothing else matters. Like just how, like we, like, we just instantly know like, this is a great dude. You know, like, first of all, the fact that he doesn't get angry when she says there's someone else, he gets sad that he's losing her. But then once he finds out he's not losing her, he doesn't care that there's like some other issue. And it's like, Oh, you don't know me. You don't, you know? And, um, so I thought that moment was really great touching. Um, I, <laughs> one of my other favorite is the, the Nancy drew moment where how she wrote something in his pad so he can take <laughs> the, the charcoal to like rub on it and see where the indentation and see all the letters. I like, called that shit. The second that she tore that yeah. out, like yep, we're going to exactly. get the yep, fucking same. last crusade etching yep. the, the shield of the Knights <laughs> Templar. <laughs> I mean, I remember doing that as a kid, like reading that, yeah, in a Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys book where it's just like, wait, you can do that? And I like, I think I, I did that. Like I had my mom do that or something like that was like, write a note on this pad of paper. <laughs> like yeah. it works. You can read it. Um, I liked that a lot. I liked too that he got the charcoal from that like illegal bazaar mm-hmm. because the bazaar felt like a great real place that we've seen in other movies that makes sense to exist and it makes sense that they're connected to the mob guys and i loved that we just left it behind after that mm-hmm. because like yep no nope, it you, you know what kind of place this is it's there our character's not concerned anymore off it goes away like that was something we didn't need more of and they set it aside and then that was the place where he finds a real fire with ash and charcoal but like of course because imagine what other weird stuff is going to be in this black market right, right. there's going to be like real non-cloned meat you know sold illegally and there's gonna be you know all sorts you know false passports right like all sorts of crazy nonsense so this is as good a place as any for him to find an actual fire as opposed to like you know an electric like heating lamp right for food or something right that was a nice touch well and it's interesting too like you you've actually made me think deeper about that whole thing is that when when he kind of tussles with those guys a bit he holds up his pencil which is broken and then he finds like a pen somewhere to write a note. And it's like, yeah, like in, in this future, like how, how often are we, are we still using pencil, you know, or is it just, mm-hmm. is it pens? Like, I feel like kind of him having a pencil is a very kind of more traditional thing, which if his pencil wasn't broken, he could have done the rubbing with the pencil. Like you could do that same thing, you know, where you're lightly rubbing the pencil, but you, I don't think you could have done that with ink, you know, and it kind of shows the two of them having to like, get, you have to use more pressure to use the pen, you know, which is what, what makes it push through to the other side. I mean, I guess if you were pushing. It reminds him of her, you know, doing the pressure with the pen. Yeah. Yeah. I like that moment too, because it was a great, like how often in movies where you go to the place and you're trying to figure out the next thing and you have mobs like mob guys in your way and they tell you to leave and you don't. And then it's a fight. Mm -hmm. He has the realization and leaves and Mm -hmm. we don't see those goons again. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. So it was just like a really great like subjugation of expectations in that moment. Like how many times do we see the dude just kind of barreling through like the protagonist barreling through whatever is going on. Mm-hmm. And that was just information gathering. Once he got it, he could move. And like, I thought that was a really good like mm-hmm. twist. Mm-hmm. On, on and that, that even yeah. though our shopkeepers are big assholes and like, 
antagonizing him. They right. also know what's bad for business. Right. And so as much as they knock the pencil out of his hand, they let him get the pen. And they let him try to write. And they let him step over to the ashes, right? Mm-hmm. And then they let him leave. And they're just like, all right, not my problem anymore, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things too, like, you know, like, like I, you know, mentioned sort of like the, the comparison to John Wick, like John Wick is the way it is. Cause he has nothing left to lose. No. Like Leo is looking for something like he's right. not in it to fight every person who right. comes into his face. So it's like, okay, like, yeah, I got what I needed. I don't need to fight these guys. You know, it's only if they're in my way when I'm trying to get to, to something, you know? And, um, and he is not comically OP <laughs> like right. John Wick is. <laughs> the amount of headshots in those films <laughs> is irresponsible. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> um, and then, I, yeah, another favorite scene, I think, is that, yeah, the underwater scream. Like, that was just, yeah. you know, especially because how they set the precedent for that. You know, like I was saying earlier, that, that the water is such a, a sense of calm for him. And we see him doing the laps and we see him drinking the water. And then it's it's not cutting it. It's not doing it this time, you know. And that's the only thing that can kind of, like, release what's what's pent up and all of that. Um, that was great. Um I also love, uh, oh, so, so the diner scene, um, first of all, like, you know, the TV being the reference to moon, that was something that I geeked out about the first time. I won't go into detail about it to not spoil it for those of you who didn't catch it. Um, but then also, you know, and, and, and part of us seeing as Paul Rudd being kind of an, an asshole, but like, but I, what I like about that too, is he's also a, a regular asshole at that point. Like we've all seen regular ass people talk to customer service, you know, workers in that same way, you know, so this, this has nothing to do with Paul Rudd. Yeah. Being who he is in this film, this is just a, a regular shit bag we'd see on the street every day. Like who's, you know, Oh, I, I'm at the table. Can I get certain, you know, just that whole thing. And then the, the part of him walking over and then having to catch his breath like that, that to me was the, the epitome of like, of like a Paul Rudd. That justified know, like, Paul Rudd's casting, right? Yeah. There. It's like, that's, you know, it's like, it's they, they thought the scene in mind is like, we need Paul Rudd to do this. Um, but just how perfect that was where, and you almost thought for a minute, like he was kind of softening it a little bit and kind of joking with the, the guy working there. But, but then he goes right back to being an asshole to him again. You know, it's not like, okay, you know, like we had this funny moment together, like that was still part of him being an asshole. So it was like, it was, it was a great thing to watch, but then to also feel uncomfortable because you almost started liking him more because, oh, he's kind of joking around with this guy. It's like, no, he's not joking around with him. He's belittling him, you know? And, and that like brought you right back to like, okay, yeah, kind of fuck this guy. Um, and then, you know, but to still appreciate it on that level of like Paul Rudd as an actor, but the development of this character at the same time. Um, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The scene when he draws the the little, you know, like, like I think Zeke, you had said this one, he draws the little bear picture for, for the, for mm-hmm. the girl. Like that was great. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, Oh, here's, here's how, here's someone interacting with a child that we're not suspicious of. Okay. Here's the difference. You know, <laughs> here's, here's, here's what you do, you know? Um, which and what's kind of interesting too is that when um like you know uh, Joel I think you said like we knew early on he was a pedophile, um the the scene where where uh, Josie kind of comes downstairs and he kind of you know has her you know oh and she just wakes up that's what it is and he's kind of like oh you just woke up and he like that part. I feel like we're not meant to suspect anything because that's just oh that's just you know oh Uncle Duck or whatever and it's like oh fuck like like how many other 
uncles are there out there who are just like, oh, you just will come see Uncle Doug. And it's just like yeah. the great part about it is not that, oh, that scene was innocent. It's just like, no, noticing that this thing that could have been taken as innocent actually had this disturbing undertone. It's just like how many other moments are there in life like that where it's like oh it's just uncle duck come see uncle you know and it's like and sure he kind of turns on the 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 babysitter but you're like okay like i'm not sure how old she is maybe he's being a creep but not a pedophile and it's not until he's like oh hoping that she's what 15 or 16 as opposed Uh, to she's actually 23 or something that you're like okay this is fucked up you know um, yeah. You reminded me that I, the girl doesn't speak for almost the whole film either, Josie, right, right. which was also brilliant. Yeah. I really liked that we don't get to hear her voice until Leo has had his. I don't remember exactly when she first speaks. I think it's before the bridge, isn't it? Maybe she speaks in the car before that. But like Maybe. until Leo's had his reckoning, you know, with with Cactus and everything, only Len do we get to experience the child as a person. Mm-hmm. and not just as a person but as a, a sort of light in the darkness yeah yeah which which brings me to my my other favorite scene is well it's like kind of the two back to back the one when he when he first speaks is just like mm-hmm. you know like you know hearing that little bit of like like how he's struggling and he finally gets it out and he's able to kind of like tell her and you know and you hear that little bit of like distortion to it but then it seems like it almost gets a little better the more he talks um you know kind of kind of you know giving him his voice finally and then like the very last scene when they're at the diner and he like smiles which i think is the first time in the whole film he smiles and i i feel like there was another movie i was watching like that um oh uh uh you know with not to get in whole discussion about that but uh, uh episode nine where at the very end when Kylo Ren smiles and it's just like, it's, it's such a jarring thing. And it's like, you don't notice it. You don't notice that a character is not smiling the whole fucking time. And then to see them smile and you're like, Oh, what's, what happened to your face? You know? And it was just like (laughs) to see that and to see, like, I think that's again, what gave it a sense of, of resolution. Like his, his life was torn apart and fucked up, but, but it was a moment of like, okay, like things are going to be okay. And like, you know, he saved her and he knew she was going to be okay. And, you know, all, you know, the, the, those problems. And just to, so, so, so to see that him being at a point where he can finally smile, you know, and I mean, maybe he, he may have grinned like with his lips, but to like see his teeth engaged in the smile was just like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, like this is, you know, it was this, this, this like ray of sunshine that came, you know? Um, so that, yeah, that was great. I was expecting to be upset about his voice and also expecting him to be too. Again, I, I was expecting the film in general through the character to take the approach that he was just as much a person without a voice and that it had been forced upon him and it was this, you know, mean thing. But then it, it wasn't. It was a blessing so that he could warn the child. Mm-hmm. And like, I just, I, that was handled really well. And by the end, I was really happy for him. And like, I just was, that, that totally threw me for a loop in a great way. Yeah. I also really like the uh, Paul Rudd. Um, uh, it's a fucking cookie line. Um, she says biscuit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, that was the people idea. are so rude. She <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just like takes her head and like pushes it at her tea. And, like, <laughs> talking about her. torture right in front of this lady. Yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's talking so casually about these fucked up things, too. That was the other great bit of it. It's just like, rude. Why are you stop paying attention? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I definitely want to watch it again. Like I said, I just in general, what you mentioned, Tim, about seeing more the second time through is, I think, a function of films with this kind of twisty plot and a function of a lot of noirs. So in that regard, I want to look at it again. But I also definitely want to look at it again with the perception of him as as his parents were Amish, and so they've passed, and now he's just stuck alone with his Amish past and only himself and no voice to navigate as a thing that explains his, you know, the the mixed nature of his life. I like that mm-hmm. interpretation a lot. Yeah, and to be fair, again, I stepping away from the knee-jerk and thinking more, the perception, perception, the per- presentation felt more like old-fashioned presentations of Native Americans, mm-hmm. right? Where they're just savages meant to do violence for the purpose of the film. And we've come so far in, th- we've come very far in that regard for Native Americans and for lots, lots of groups. There's still plenty of work to be done, right? So, like, it was frustrating for me to see this 2018 movie that just took the, this 1962 approach. I don't know. I, I think that was my knee-jerk reaction. Right. It wasn't as damaging. purposefully. Yes, you're you're right. But I, and to be fair, it's so much harder to find information about the Amish at all <laughs> anywhere. And it's much <laughs> harder to. Right. <laughs> well, right. And, and even just I, I don't know what would happen if you showed up and said, I want to represent you respectfully in my film. I think depending on the community, they might just tell you to go away. They wouldn't even talk to you. You know, they wouldn't like necessarily send somebody to to consult. Um, that's a great question. I don't know. So I, I do, I want to take a more generous perspective and rewatch the film. This is why we do movie mumble, right? Right. Because <laughs> we get more out of the experiences together. I like it. God. And good favorite scenes from everybody all over the place. I, oh, I keep thinking about his voice at the end and how satisfying that was. It was good. And it could have, it could have been ridiculous in kind of the, the mm-hmm. distortion. It could have been, I don't know. Like they, I think they nailed the right mix of it feeling foreign to him. Also, he's like, I've seen people speak. I, I don't, how do you speak also? I think a lot of that was compa- compa- mm-hmm. or, uh, conveyed really well, but also the urgency of, I have to warn her. I, I, the, the For a character who looked sad throughout so much of the film, he was yeah. so emotive there in the water. Yeah. It was yeah. beautiful. And, and what you mentioned, Tim, about him using water as his, him reclaiming it, right? Yeah. And making water his own. Also, he made his voice his own, right? Which I think is why it felt so satisfying because the voice was forced upon him by the the pedophile for the forcing of the apology. And he just absolutely refuses to speak until the pedophile is dead. And then he claims it. The voice is his. He, mm-hmm. Nobody else's. That was a great act of 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 claiming, yeah. and to take place in the same water that had freed him. I do. I'm liking it. I like it more and more. I think about it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Yeah, the rebirth and the baptism imagery of the the final scene is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is uh, movie two in. Tim's submerged series after uh, <laughs> under the skin <laughs> with the oh yeah that's right there's <laughs> a lot of underwater under underworldly tor- type things in these yeah let's say uh, you make that connection we're doing the abyss next <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> and what so was it was that? a little too obvious but I couldn't think of another underwater <laughs> movie in 
times. Well, was, wasn't there that horror that just came out a little while back with Kristen Stewart? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, all of the, the quick links on her Google are Twilight-related. Um, but I'm... I don't know. Are they in a submarine or something? Like an underwater... I was going to say underwater space station, but... <laughs> I mean, right, underwater I think it's something weaving. simple like underwater or something like that. Under, it is called underwater. You're right. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> right. So underwater, the abyss, the Meg. <laughs> Just right. call it what it is. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> underwater. Zeke, we haven't heard much from you. I feel like we should make you speak more if you have more to say <laughs> or even if you don't <laughs> which is an ironic thing to be saying during the, <laughs> Zeke is just yeah, acting the part that's what he's doing he's like <laughs> trying trying to live it um no I, I think similarly to Scott um I'd like to watch it again with some of those things in mind I think there's a lot of um nuance and things to the characters that I hadn't really thought about and to hear the things that you caught on your second watch um I'm definitely interested there I'm torn because I think there are things that I had problems with the first time that I don't know will be fixed. Right. And I don't think it's problems with the film itself. Right. And so one thing that I've been thinking about is um, when we talked about the structure and um, things like that, right. Uh, Any movie has to walk a balance between how much backstory do you get or world building do you get and how much is left up to you. And so I think a lot of things we talked about, um, I don't know. I mean, we mentioned wanting to maybe know a little bit more about uh, Doc and Bill's background or his relationship with, um, you know, the daughter before or um, with the wife. Uh, you know, I, that like mob scene is a fascinating thing. And that would be a cool thing to get some more world building on. Um, you know, Leo's background and, and what goes on in between those 30 years could be interesting too. There are a lot of things that would be interesting to know more about. And I think that's where I was at first. Like I said, there's these two paths and then they kind of just come together. Um, I think you could grow a little bit uh, more about the characters um, and that an emotional connection if you spend more time with each of them. At the same time, it's, you know, it's already over two hours, um, you know, things to come together as they do. But I don't think it would have been improved if we spent 30 more minutes with the mob and then 15 more minutes with Leo and then 15 more minutes with Bill and the wife. And then 15, you know, you can't do all of that. So I think where I'm trying to grapple or what I'm trying to grapple with is that, like I said, the convert, the, the separate paths that converge um, and not feeling the emotional connection, but like what would have changed that. So I don't know that watching it again, I don't, I don't think I'm going to have a revelation where I'm like, Oh yeah, it gets all the things that I want. At the same time, I think I did learn enough about each of the characters and their motives and things like that, that if I did watch it again, I will gain a little bit. Um, But I just think it's unfair of me to ask the movie to be a completely different movie or to be a trilogy, just so I can get a little bit more about those things. So that's where I'm at. I'm just over here thinking, I don't know. (laughs) It's, It's really interesting that the climax of the movie is... Leo and Paul Rudd meeting and fighting, right? And it's so anticlimactic. He just stab- stabs him in the fucking throat. There's no tussle. It's just, it's so anticlimactic and matter of fact. It's sinister for that, just how casually, I mean, not casually, but so quickly that it happens. 
and it, it has a weird uh, another thing with the pacing thing is like that's kind of your big climax and then we get the pedophile show for for 15 minutes and that tension and all of that which is an, a weird s- subjugation of kind of like the the peak and release like because you're building tension to these we two get a stories. second to climax yeah. right but I don't know. <laughs> Second climaxes are, are less slippery, in, I guess. In keeping with the what I mentioned before about that sort of reveal that that now the pedophile is becoming something worse, right? Because he's freed, as it were, from the the previous life of like complacency. That's sort of the reveal for the character that that there's gonna be something beyond Nadira, right? Because the Nadira story has wrapped up. It's done everything's over everyone's dead except leo basically um there is no future there is no outside world but then there's this drive with the kid and duck becoming you know mutating into something even somehow even more awful god than we already saw and there's the 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 realization for leo that there can be more there will be more no matter what he does or whether he keeps living and i think that I, I didn't. I don't think I would have seen this without our discussion, but it feels now like, like all of that is the lead up to Leo taking his future into his hands on the bridge. Yeah, and I, like I said, I would not. I don't think I would have made that connection without the discussion. I, get I don't that know from if like the film does theme- justice. I think, yeah, I think it, from a thematic standpoint, yes. But it, it, in in terms of pacing, it's just an odd deviations i don't know it well not even that i just think it 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 seemed like (laughs) it seemed like the snyder cuts uh uh epilogue just kind of tacked on (laughs) and too long i have more let's just add it (laughs) well they gave me 60 million dollars or whatever it was 80 million dollars to do reshoots or whatever i found a way to talk about that again sorry um (laughs) i do want to deviate a little if that's all right to duncan jones 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 duncan jones our director right um who also directed we talked a little bit about moon but we're gonna kind of stay away right in the attempt to keep that fresh he also directed source code if any of you saw that jake gyllenhaal i haven't seen source code no that was good yeah and i it's funny now i wouldn't i kind of forgot about it right but i was looking at his movies and Oh yeah, source code. Boom. I, you know, if this, if the pieces of this had come together, I think, like, I feel like one day, you know, based on what people are saying about Moon, right, we'll be looking back at Duncan Jones as an excellent filmmaker, right, with a storied career, um, and people will look back at that cinematography, the filmography of his, and they will look at Moon as great, right, and warcraft which he also directed as just a different project he took on (laughs) not one of like his movies right sure (laughs) similar to source code as a project he took on but i think they'll look at mute as one of his movies that was not like i said underbaked but then taught important lessons and laid important work that will come back around later and pay off dividends you know we'll for, for his career i don't know we'll see but now i'm looking at source code and thinking if wondering if that influenced mute at all hmm. because it has a similar you know our central protagonist is you know physically limited the the basic premise being right that he's in this simulation of the eight minutes leading up to 
a terrorist attack and they're trying to investigate to figure out who did it because it's the first attack in a series right so that's why he's in this time loop of they keep sending him back through the same eight minutes and he keeps in and so his ability to interact with reality is of course zilch because he's in this simulation so his ability to react with the simulated reality is a whole world that he has to come to grips with and learn um i wonder you know i wonder if there was any influence there from you Hmm. yeah i'm also curious like what the netflix studio in quotes i mean i guess it is Mm. a studio but like how how they're influenced because seriously like the the amount of sci-fi sheen like all the netflix shows (laughs) and all the movies seem to have this i don't know if it's just like a post michael bay thing or or abrams with the lens flare stuff i don't know if that's just like how people think those films should be shot but I feel like th- it seems like there's a Netflix filter that like all of the shit that we're going to do, you have to do this at the end, like this glossy, shiny. I don't know. Like this is also an interesting in in, uh, in conversation with Palm Springs, which was a, a Hulu original, which I, I've seen fewer of those. But I don't get the same sense that Hulu's uh, uh, in-house stuff has the same kind of rubber stampiness i don't What's like really netflix interesting there is that hulu is not because hulu's owned by disney right right like they they weren't i think they were it was a sort of collaborative venture between you know disney abc and fox and a few other of the and warner you know a few of the major studios but the, it always came from the traditional hollywood studios and that's that's what i think i think since fox and disney merged it's basically disney's baby now but it, it that that's interesting yeah that palm springs had that like normal movie feel to it because it came from a service that comes from normal movie studios which i i'm not i don't want to talk down to a streaming network as a, a, a bad no, no. producer of things I, like prime does really good stuff there's some netflix stuff that's really good i liked mm-hmm. um the the hemsworth one where he's in india like extraction or something like that and oh, then yeah. there's uh old guard was really good um mm-hmm. as a feature film like i i think they produce good stuff it's they've just done a lot and i feel like there's a certain kind of sameness to the production i'm wondering if and we have no way of i mean who knows how the studios work except people within them but it's also like what about the irishman oh that was we a netflix to... <laughs> well just, hey, is it though without getting into well that's the question right because it it's Scorsese, sure. Right, but like it's came Netflix, Netflix. going to talk to Duncan the same way he talk, they talked to Scorsese? Well, sure. No. But that didn't, I haven't seen it, but I would, from, just from the trailers, right, it doesn't seem to have that same sheen. You didn't see Irishman? Not yet. Scott? I haven't been able to set the time aside yet. I'm very surprised honestly. by that. Just the, the runtime, yeah. Yeah, it's long. It's a slog. A mixture um, of runtime and mood, right? Like there are right. times when I'm, oh great, I have four hours tonight, and I want to just watch Simpsons reruns, you know. <laughs> and then there are times when I'm like, oh, I want a good drama. I have, ooh, an hour before it's midnight. Uh, what am I putting on? Right? It hasn't. It is a drag. It's yeah. a drag race type of night, not an <laughs> Irishman type of night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the stars haven't aligned yet, but they'll come. Yeah, I'm just curious because it is very kind of hit or miss with Netflix stuff. So yeah, is that because Netflix is less hands-on with Scorsese and they're more hands-on with other things, or is it something inherent to their their system so far? Because yeah. I think for a long time it was just like, hey, we have all this money, we have all these shows, everybody gets three seasons at least, and then we'll figure it out after that. I don't know. 
I think we've talked a little bit about how the disadvantageous position they're in, in terms of with traditional television, you make a show and if people watch it, it makes money, right? Yeah. Whereas with Netflix, no matter how much they make and how good it is, it doesn't make them more money. It just stops them from losing money, right? right? <laughs> to the other services. So that's a weird spot to be in. That's the other thing is like with a movie like Mute, I feel like if it had gotten a theater release, right, it would be kind of like a more indie art house. I feel like that's kind of what they they were going for with, I don't the tone of it. I don't know that it would have been like big summer blockbuster. Maybe I'm, I'm just projecting. I don't know. It seems much more weird than a mainstream movie. Does that, I don't know. I don't know what is normal. I might be missing some pieces, but you know, mute felt like a sci-fi push, right? We got mute, we got altered carbon, we got love, death and robots, yeah. right? It, it yeah. felt like them exploring the space in multiple ways. And altered carbon was very popular. Love, Death, and Robots got great reviews. You know, Mute got mixed reviews, so they stuck with Altered Carbon. We got a season two of Love, Death, and Robots, but Mute just happened. Admittedly, it was also a movie, not necessarily a franchise, right, to be fair. But, like, Bird Box felt like a a push into horror, but then what else was there but Bird Box at the time? I mean, like, they did, did what they is have the Haunting of lined up? Live Manor or whatever that is. They, they've done some horror series. Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that came well after uh bird box didn't it i'm telling like, you i i think somebody went right from quiet place <laughs> to the boardroom like we got to get a picture like this going right now yeah because yeah the holy of hill house and um lock and key mm-hmm. and a little bit the umbrella academy all came oh, pretty yeah. close together and all had similar vibes umbrella academy is less horror but still a lot of that same like mysterious world those that felt like another push right but yeah i'm wondering about bird box it feels a lot more just sticks out like a sore thumb have we all seen bird box yeah can we just say what a joke that film was <laughs> real quick just let me bury that for a second well what i say fuck? i've seen it i haven't finished it and <laughs> as yeah, in <laughs> not like time-wise i just i on purpose stopped yeah it's, it's not it's not gonna improve if you see the end stopping is something i'm way more willing to do at home than i am in a theater actually i don't know that i've ever walked out of a movie i, I think I've, i have twice yeah. zeke has I don't been know there that for I've half ever walked out but i've turned off a lot at home <laughs> In, interesting right the different the sunk cost fallacy is different i guess right yeah I don't know that I'll turn it off. I'll definitely like play with my phone. Like that's that's as 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 much a rejection as I can give to a new piece of material is like I am more interested in Instagram right now. See, I don't I don't know if I do that as a rejection. I like when I'm rewatching Futurama, I'm maybe also on my phone. Right. Because the whole vibe is chill. <laughs> right. Not, right. So if a film is bad, I'm not gonna give it a chill vibe. I'm gonna stop. <laughs> right. I don't know. Uh, Speaking of A Quiet Place, A Quiet Place 2 is coming. It's out. It's out. Oh. I saw it at a drive-in. Frickin' 2020. I don't know what... what, No passage of time anymore. Look at the size of my eyes, and that's my review. All right. Simple (laughs) enough. Um, To come back to mute a little bit, (laughs) I want to ask... No, I'm sorry. I know that was abrupt, but I... (laughs) No, it's good. We've been talking franchises and genres. Um, I... You're hosting as Where you should. <laughs> in mute, did you see DNA from other sci-fi or other noirs? That's just an open question for anybody. And I, 
I haven't considered it till this moment. I don't have an answer ready. The bazaar is straight out of fucking Blade Runner. When he eats the noodles in the rain, <laughs> same vibe. I wrote it down. I wrote Blade yeah. Runner just yep. shamelessly. Sure. I don't think the setting is Blade Runner. I think I've seen a lot of unfavorable comparisons where people are like the visuals were trying to be a Blade Runner, but they fell short. But like I said, I think it's more near future. No, no, I, I agree. I, but like that market that very specifically. No, no, sorry. Not, I'm not trying different... to gut your comparison. No, no, no. I, I... Yeah, but to sort of redirect what I've seen, you know, from the internet, the setting felt more more unexplored. Like I said, near future instead of far future. Yeah. And I'm trying to think now, I don't know that I've seen that anywhere else that comes to mind immediately you get more like transformers is super realistic present day with like everyone has a laser gun now mm-hmm. right that's not the same thing at all right even though it's near future i'd be curious to see what the the uh budget for this film was because it's it's very specific to kind of interior locations we spent a lot of time in his kind of conservative apartment and but like the the sci-fi stuff didn't look cheap or chintzy or anything like it, it, they were quality effects on it. But I, I don't think that we spent a whole lot of time out and about. It was more kind of like these interior spaces rather than kind of the the greater city sci-fi scape, which I thought was interesting. I don't have a quick result for you. There's nothing on Wikipedia or IMDb where they usually show things like budget and box office. So I'll do a I guess there more. wouldn't be a box office for it. Like, see, wow, Netflix, right. Netflix is also really kind of close to the chest with their data, so we might not have a, a real sense mm-hmm. of. Of course, I guess uh, what is it? Jupiter's Legacy or whatever was like Jupiter Ascending. No, 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 no. The series, the uh, um, Mark Millar averse Netflix series that just got canceled, but for some reason a spinoff is getting a series. I don't know. They oh, one right. That had no relation to Jupiter Ascending. That was right, just a different no. series. Right, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. But That's what I was saying about, like, their successes don't earn the money. They just stop them from losing money. Right. So, I, yeah, there's that weird sense of we're going to spend money to not make money. <laughs> Did know? anybody else recognize any, like, borrowed sci-fi tropes? Or... Yeah, yeah, for me, I mean, yeah, the main was also Blade Runner, like not mm-hmm. not to the extreme of Blade Runner. Yeah, because like you said, it's more yeah. near future, but just that that I guess why Blade Runner is so well known that it looks like a, a plausible future, not like, oh, we're all wearing spacesuits and look like astronauts. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not what the future is going to look like, you know, or, um, you know, but yeah, so that it just it looked like natural, like it could be our future, you know, like, mm-hmm. um you know, and the and, and just the way certain things evolve, like oh look, yeah, like you get your food delivered by drones and things like that. Like some yeah. of that, some of it actually reminded me of like the last season of Parks and Rec, where they yeah, kind of yeah. did that same thing huh. with like you know, oh Grizzle came in and they took over. So here's all these new things we have. We have you know these phones with like this hologram projected up, and we have drones that deliver everything. You know, and it, so it was like a little bit into the future, but also you know once we kind of caught up, it's like wait, we have some of that stuff. That is a thing. Okay, so you know it wasn't science fiction so much as like a prediction you know Mm -hmm. yeah as a prepubescent blade runner the setting was exquisite Mm. yeah i'm trying to think about looper does anybody remember what the future looked like in looper i mean they're both future admittedly both of the time periods but i mean the further future where bruce willis came from (laughs) because i don't remember at all 
it seemed very industrial, but like I'm trying to think like the uh oh fuck district nine ish mm. or maybe um what is it buddy the one that has uh Chappy? Uh, Chappy with Die Antwerp. Kind of yeah. a little bit like that, but it was also kind of the Blade Runner thing where like a kind of Asian fusion where it's <laughs> Asian future dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, 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 Japanese and Chinese language things kind of incorporated in. Because yeah. I think he ends up retiring in, in Japan, right? Bruce Willis's character in Looper. No. <laughs> Doesn't he... Oh, oh no! I mean, before before the film takes place, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, <laughs> I was thinking of the I've seen movie, that movie once. Right? Because <laughs> um, like the the past future where most of the film takes yeah. place yeah, is yeah. on a farm outside of a bunch of factories. Right. So like, regardless of how normal that looks, it's clearly just an isolated. Like we don't get to see what the future is like, you know. So. The only thing I can think of is uh, Detroit China. Sarah is saying China for the, for Looper. Like at one point, the character is making a decision on what language to learn, and he's told to learn Chinese instead of French. Thank you, sweetie. Better than the internet, <laughs> Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you Certainly saying? nicer than the internet, right? More friendly. <laughs> uh, yeah, just saying. The only thing I could think of, uh, and again, I feel like my sci-fi and uh noir knowledge is pretty limited so the only thing i can think of is uh detroit become human um oh, just similar yeah. sort of like lighting setting sort of similar nearish future um also for whatever reason the the scars guard in this movie looks a lot like the protagonist from that game oh. uh, and also there are robot strippers so <laughs> oh i, I totally forgot about the sex well you robots. know what i liked the robots didn't seem to be alive right like you go into the club and they're just turned mm. off like mm-hmm. like animatron that was another neat yeah. method of making this near future instead of far future right where it's just true. kind of like appliances rather than ai disney's newest right. animatron <laughs> <laughs> so fucking awkward and gross yeah. With the fucking the... spiny protrusions, like where <laughs> oh, is the that two on the bed, yeah. Uh. yeah, right. The um, nothing specific in terms of noir or sci-fi, but the plot's woven weaviness. You know, again, I think it didn't quite come together for me. They need another another minute in the oven, but it felt like a more trackable Polanski film, like Chinatown yeah. or Ghost Rider or something. Is anybody? I've n- I've not seen Ghost Rider. I did, yeah, in the theater actually. Oh wow! And you know, I wasn't impressed. I really well. You've Chinatown's seen Chinatown. kind of a hard thing, right? To... It, you've seen Chinatown, right? They did the Chinatown non-ending, except it was dumb and unfulfilling, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they did the Chinatown limited character perspective, except instead you just spent the whole movie confused. Like it, mm-hmm. it really did feel like he was trying to recapture Chinatown and just failed miserably. So when I say a a a, a Polanski plot you can actually follow, I'm thinking of Ghost Rider as the, the negative there, right? And I really felt Pulp Fictiony. I I don't know why. Mm-hmm. That that just kind of arose as like these kind of twisting narratives that that kind of come into each other violently and kind of like mm. I I really would have been interested. <laughs> let's not let's not get into uh, alternate cuts or directors cuts or anything. But it would be interesting to see kind of a more more disparate, more kind of jarring film structure and see if that would have played because 
Because if you're playing with the reveal of the pedophile more, God, what a fucking weird sentence to have just said. But if you're playing with that narratively, and you can set it up as like, oh, he's kind of sweet. He's he's taken a liking to in in a, a fun uncle way, and then it's like, oh fuck, and then you rewatch it with all of all of that going into it, rather than seeing it from one of the first things he says being fucking creepy and pedophilic. Like, I that I uh, might have made it more, not less. It would have been just as uncomfortable. But in terms of like the film revealing it to you and playing with that reveal would have been more satisfying, engaging, entertaining. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Just a thought. Tim, did you have anything we haven't gotten to yet? No, I think that was basically it. Yeah, just like the for me, that was the the big thing that reminded me of. um, Yeah, it was Blade Runner and that was that was about it. Um, yeah, and I see what you're saying about like the Pulp Fiction thing. I think to me, what, what made the connection with Pulp Fiction, yeah, is the like the more disturbing aspects. I feel like that's one of the things for me with Pulp Fiction that really kind of blew it out of the water was like, oh man, like I've never seen another movie go here before, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that was one of the things with this, like with yeah, with with Duck's character, like that this is you know like whoa, like hey, like you're just kind of you know, putting this in here as part of this, the, the, the story, like this is, this is kind of fucked up, but it's like, well, but this is, you know, this, this happens in real life. And this is, you know, an issue that people deal with and, you know, and um, yeah, just kind of being like it, you know, kind of, I guess maybe watching it around the disturbing parts in a sense, you know, like, you know, where it's like, okay, like this, this part really disturbed me, but like, as far as where it fits into the film, it's like, you know, we're supposed to be disturbed by this, you know, this isn't a character we're supposed to like, they're not making, you know, they're not trying to Cruella him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, I think, it, it, yeah. it definitely does a good job of saying these are the bad guys. Like right. once, once it, that distinction has been made, like these are the bad guys, it doesn't yeah. champion those characters mm-hmm. at all. I, yeah. Well, on that note, I'm going to champion a ham-fisted attempt to get to my favorite segment, and I'll put it right here. It is it is time for another situational movie recommendation. Situational movie recommendations. It's been so long since I've said it right after the sing-song intro, and I'm just vamping because I have no idea what it should be. My initial thought was, what's your favorite movie that features really prominently somebody who is differently abled. Maybe let's go with that because that seems to be the crux of this narrative thing. Hmm. Quiet Place is an easy answer. I think that film is incredible. Its sequel is quite good as well. Um, I'll go with that one. (laughs) I feel like there was something I watched recently but while I'm thinking of that, I'm going to go with a, a preliminary answer. And I don't, I don't know if this counts, but um, uh, Stuart Little. No, not Stuart Little. Is that, wait, is that the one? No. Uh, That's the one with the mouse. No, what am I thinking of? Uh, yeah, I was I, like, I don't remember. No. <laughs> uh, what? It, uh, damn it. What is the movie I'm thinking of? Kari, come back to me. Cut that out. <laughs> Fix it in post. <laughs> we might need a pause here, Joel. Yeah. yeah. For sure. It also, I don't know that maybe. No, I, I like it. It's this okay. is a great opportunity for it, but I think we just need to think 
No, for sure. I'm just also wondering is like, is that is supporting those kinds of films like where it's the gimmick of the film, that's a problem. Or where it's somebody who is not that cast as that, there's also those issues. As has been discussed by better people than me, um, non-mainstream things tend to go through, you know, they aren't portrayed at all, and then they're portrayed but poorly, and then they're portrayed but, like, stereotypically, and then they're portrayed commonplace. Like, they go through these stages before they finally get to being portrayed respectfully and properly. Um, So, you know, we just need to make sure we keep aware of if we mention something that where the portrayal is problematic, you know, we keep that in mind and that even poor portrayals can sometimes contribute positively to the overall direction or maybe incomplete portrayals, I guess, if you Mm -hmm. want. Right. Uh, The most recent conversation has been gay characters, right. Where there was this sudden flood of non-straight characters who have to like verbally declare that they're non-straight and often fall into lots of visual or vocal stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it's great to see more non-straight, more, more non-straight and queer characters. But on the other hand, it'd be nice if we could start branching out from the stereotypes. And we're, we're in that transitional period. So we'll try to keep, keep an even-handed approach to any films we mention. Uh, maybe at our course, I guess, Ray... About Ray Charles because he's he's blind, which yeah. isn't remotely the the point of the film. I guess it's much right. more about the man and his music. That's an incredible it's kind of a cop out answer. No, that's a good one. I don't I don't think that's a cop out. I think that's really good. Also, like I haven't seen it, but uh, what is it? Sound of Rock or whatever the um, Sound of uh, Metal. Oh, Sound of Metal. I yeah, really want to check that, that out too. Yeah, I've heard good things. Creed Creed Two would be a good kind of entry in the, in that kind of yeah i could see that yeah because and i like that because it's not i mean i don't know yet yeah, it's not the focus of the movie right, right. which is also good because it's yeah. she, she's a character and happens to have what's eating gilbert grape is a classic uh, so so wait i haven't seen creed or creed 2 what's what's the what makes him differently it, it's able? his um girlfriend is slowly losing her hearing Oh, okay. Girlfriend is a musician. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going to say the Peanut Butter Falcon. Oh, okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. The actor, and again, to that that idea of representation, and um, you know, the actor actually has Down syndrome, and so you know, gets to portray the character without having someone else come in to do it. And Mm -hmm. um, again, one of those where you know it's not necessarily. I mean, the movie's just not. I don't know. I don't know how to, but like it, it's, it's a character with his own goals and dreams and, and he just happens to have down syndrome. Right. And right. Shia LaBeouf's character works with him separate of that. Um, I just think it does a really good job of framing it. It's very heartwarming. I'd go with that one. To not Forrest Gump himself, but Lieutenant Dan comes up without his legs in a very serious treatment. Yeah. That's of a that good... character. Good character that's, study. That's less, yeah. less. Yeah, I think his that character is it's specifically about the change, the loss of the legs, mm-hmm. as opposed to say someone born without them or something like right. that. There's a different approach there, but uh, you know, of course, that comes from war, so that all fits the the time and the theme pretty well. Gary Sinise is just an incredible actor. 
Mm-hmm. So, so the movie I was thinking of is Simon Birch, not not Stuart Little. Okay, I don't. Um, I've never heard I'm of not that. Familiar with that. With that. So, and I, I feel like an asshole because I'm like, oh, what? What? It's it's like, oh, so it's about so it's a boy with stunted growth is convinced that God has a great purpose for him. So he's you know he's basically I mean he's he's a kid during the film, but he's still like you know he's he's smaller and shorter than everyone, and you you kind of go through and it's like him and and his friend you know these two kids that they're kind of best friends you you do kind of see where you, you know it, it it it's kind of like i think him dealing with this sense of like why was i born different from everyone else and he has this belief that like he was born that way for a reason and it's kind of like it, it basically the way it is it's told i think his friend almost like a stand by me kind of way telling the story of his friend simon birch from when they were kids and kind of how kind of how inspirational he was uh, i don't want to spoil the ending because people haven't seen it who want to see it um but it's just great because it's kind of about him and it's about so much of it is just about him being like a regular kid like it shows him like acting out in religion class and like you know the teachers calling him out for it you know so it's not just all about his condition you know a lot of it is just about like him him being a kid you know um but it's you know it's really touching and i think there are probably you know kind of i think there are a few characters in there in the movie who kind of like even some adults who like kind of have an issue with him and you kind of wonder like oh are they shitty adults who like don't like the fact that you know that there's something different about him and that's why they're kind of picking on him but kind of how he deals with that and and, you know and him having like a good friend who kind of doesn't just like you know doesn't pity him it's just like yeah you're my friend whatever and and there are there are kind of jokes that are kind of go back like there's one part where they both go swimming in a pool in a lake and it's really cold and like his his friend is like oh you know my balls are like grapes and he goes or something like that or like my like prunes he goes my balls are like raisins you know because he's small (laughs) so it's like you know he's kind of making these these jokes but it's like part of their banter um but yeah it was was really good and and really touching and i think yeah like a way um i don't know yeah like one of those things too it doesn't have to be like i learned something about people who who may be different but it was just like a very touching story and and it was also like i think inspiring that he he took such a positive view on it on it you know and i think i think very little in the film if at all he's really kind of like down on himself about it and again it is like you know a condition he was born with so it wasn't like you know where i could see something with the sound of metal where it's a condition that's happening to him where you're like oh shit like that's you know there's gonna be a lot more turmoil there um but yeah that was it was great i've seen i saw it a bunch like years ago it was like one of my movies that was on rotation but so again, not Stuart Little, which was shitty on my part to be like, yeah, it's about the kid who's smaller than everyone else. So Simon Birch. I can't believe I forgot Le Intouchable, the French film that I've, I'm sure I've talked about before. The yeah, I can't believe Intouchable, you forgot about that. The Intouchables, right? Because they remade it with Brian Cranston and... Oh, okay. um, I just when Brian Cranston's in something, I forget everybody else who's in it, right? Brian Cranston Godzilla, right? Brian Cranston TV show, yeah. other Brian Cranston TV show, right? <laughs> like, um, although I, I saw the French one, which was phenomenal about the rich. I think quadriplegic is the term. Perry's paralyzed from the neck down, neck yeah. down, and he's extremely wealthy, and he ends up hiring on a lower income black man to be his caretaker and then they bond and become it's it's i'm making it sound oh. really cheesy but it is just 
absolutely phenomenal. I remember and seeing it really as a as a you know I, I've never had to personally deal with anything of the sort myself, but it feels like the portrayal is very much of the man as a person and his personality and his emotion and what he wants out of life. It didn't it didn't feel you know misconstrued or exploitative to my inexperienced understanding. I was just thinking, I don't know how well the portrayal of um, schizophrenia holds up in a beautiful mind. But I remember, like, mm-hmm. at the time, I was really impressed with that portrayal. I don't, I, again, I don't, I'm not sure that it would hold up. Um, but I just remember that being a really standout performance of kind of the the isolation and kind of perceived reality being different from actual reality um, mm. in that I, I just another one. Yeah. I don't know how accurate it was, but it was affecting. Yeah. Yeah. The theory of everything, Stephen Hawking, mm. right. Yeah. It's, again, not a kind of common answer, I guess I, I found a, a list. I was looking for, you know, representation in film. Um, and I found some good, list that's where i saw the into shop and was like oh my god that's one of my favorite movies how did i forget that what mm-hmm. the hell but i i <laughs> i found was one that's just a you know massively enormous list that just crams in everybody who even remotely fits and there are some characters here that don't remotely fit the spirit of our question it's almost comical like for example rear window because he has a broken leg for <laughs> most of the well, film they remade it with chris reeve and after his still accident rear window or was that Disturbia. No, I thought they remade I... did a no, remake no, no, no. I'm, of I'm Rear Window. Confused. Yeah, so I think I that's the version they're talking about because well, that was Stewart listed here. Okay, well, so the remake but, was but definitely. I didn't know that. So yeah, Chris okay. Reeve after he got hurt, starred Dang. in a remake of Rear Window. Okay, so some of the others then that I'm more confident about being ridiculous. There's. Uh, a Long John Silver character here from what is clearly just your typical cheesy pirate film. I, okay. I assume they chose him because he I, has a hook for her hand. Well, no, he's oh, he's got a peg leg. Rug. Okay, but peg leg. I don't sure. think of Long John Silver right. as that does an not empty. fit the spirit I, of our question, right? More exactly. a pirate than he is anything else, right? Like I'm waiting for Luke Skywalker to show up because he has a robo hand, right? I, <laughs> So that list was not very useful. Let's just say, <laughs> put that one away. Although it did give me. Yeah, let's give us Baby from Baby Driver and his tinnitus. Uh, yeah. That was a nice, uh, it was nice to see tinnitus represented on screen. That's a, it's in another movie where that's not what the movie is about, right? Like, yeah. I think that's also a different, different thing. Like, A Quiet Place is that's about fair. being quiet, but it's not about the girl who, who is deaf, and that's all it's about. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think that's something we're getting more with diversity in, in all things we're getting more to like, these characters are here because that's how the world is. It's not the whole point is that they're this thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that's how we get away from those stereotypes and we get yeah. to more accurate representation of the people who are moving about on the earth. Like, mm-hmm. Well, I also like with a, in a quiet place too, how for most of the movie, yeah, it's not about her being deaf. However, in the end, like her being deaf ends up leading to them finding a solution of how they, so it's like, it's like, yeah, it's not only is it something that kind of, you know, is a disadvantage to her, it becomes an advantage, you know, 
it's almost kind of like, oh, thank God for her because of, you know, like, because her, her condition actually helped us. Like she, you know, so rather than being like, you know, and, and not that I think in, in every sense, it's like, oh, you have to turn them into a hero of the story. But I think that was kind of like also a smart move in that sense that like, you know, if we were following a family where she wasn't deaf and didn't have a hearing aid and it didn't produce the feedback, they wouldn't have figured out how, oh, we can amplify the sound of the feedback and it'll hurt the monsters, you know? Um, so I thought that was like, but, but again, that was only at the very end. It was only like after we've actually gotten to know her as a character and as a person and her family relationship and the guilt she's feeling over her brother and this, that, and the other thing, you know, then it's like, oh, and by the way, she's going to save your asses. So, and possibly the whole world, because now we have a way to fight them, you know? Mm -hmm. That one was oddly thought provoking. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> I uh, myself on the back. And, and I'm also going to cheat on this one, too, and mention a TV show, because this one was was very impactful to me, and especially more so, you know, as I've, as I've gotten older, um, was the, the episode of Scrubs where Michael J. Fox guest starred. And they incorporated oh, his Parkinson's as like, a, as like his OC, like his character had OCD and they kind of worked that into it. Like the way his movements were and how he had like certain ticks and things like that. Um, which I thought was great because it was just like, you know, rather than being like, okay, since you have Parkinson's, you can only ever play Parkinson's characters. You know, it was like, well, we can use this as part of your character, but you could still be an actor and play someone else who is not you, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and that was just great and how it showed sort of like him being this amazing surgeon, but also having this dark side, like because of his OCD, he, he couldn't leave because he had to keep turning the light switch on and off. And I remember watching that when I was younger, being like, I don't get it. And being older, be like, fuck, I get it. And I hate that I get it. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of TV, Toph from Avatar. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. Oh, yeah. well, that yeah. falls into the, the superpower disabled person category, like the Charles Xavier trap, as it were. Right. Um, kind of like what you said joel about that was like you know step two on our path of working our way towards having differently abled people just be present instead of be special yeah or unspecial or etc right yeah there's a difference between but, um, like how it's handled in a quiet place and then yeah. the predator film that's just fucking yeah, awful yeah. and because just... that's also still a children's show so there's a very benign approach yeah, and it's like i mean bending is just part of that universe it's not because yeah, exactly. she's blind she's a bender it's she's a bender who happens to be blind yeah god i forgot about that predator movie nobody said daredevil that. well that wasn't well I mean, yeah i, mean, I yeah. guess it was the ben affleck movie <laughs> right. until i broke the rule that, that we were sticking to just movies yeah no but i like it let's discuss this in yeah. in all types of media let's branch out yeah well and that was part of it too is like i think you know it's also like okay we're trying to stay away from kind of like you know or at least that was kind of the 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 you know, like, oh, we don't want to glorify them for having a disability, but that's essentially what Daredevil is, is like, because of his disability, he has all these other senses, and that's what makes him a superhero, which, you know, again, like, in a world of superheroes, it's like, sure, you know, you don't want to be like, oh, only people without disabilities can't be superheroes, but... You know, and I, I've got to believe that there are some people out there who, you know, we, we all look at these superheroes and imagine them as better versions of ourselves. So it's like, I assume that someone like Daredevil for blind people is like super inspiring because it's like he's blind and a superhero. It's not just like, you know, it's not one or the other, you know, or it's not like, you know, oh, you have a disability and you're treated the same as everyone else. It's like, no, you can also be 
better and have powers and skills better than everyone else too. You know, and yeah. I think that, you know, yeah. I mean, as a big Daredevil fan, I didn't bring him up because on the flip side of that, right. There's like the, Oh, if you go blind, that's okay. Because you're just going to get super hearing, you know what right. I mean? Like, so I think there, you know, I, I thought there were other uh, characters with <laughs> probably better representation to bring in. I felt like, I don't know, but at the same time, Tim, to your point, I always liked Daredevil. And I think, um, I don't know. I, I think there is some inspiration to be had there too. I just, I, I wasn't sure. I think it's a toss up, right. Depending on who you ask. No, yeah. I think those are good points. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, I think also like the struggle that he goes through, you know, I, I don't think it's instantly like sweet. I have superpowers. I think there's still a long time where he's just like, it sucks that I can't see anymore. You know, right. which I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm get, again, I'm assuming, cause I don't, I don't know, but if you lose your sight in the middle of your life, you're going to be like, this fucking sucks. Like that. I can't <laughs> see anymore. Like, it's not going to be something that's just instantly you accept it and get on with your life. You have to work through that. And I feel like that was part of his character too, is working through that and working around that and seeing, okay, you lost this thing, but what do you still have? And how do you still use those things to your advantage? And, and again, yes, it's not that, you know, if you're blind, you'll become a superhero. But again, the metaphor of using what you still have to to rebuild the way you perceive the world, you know, and, and using, you know, you know, not amplifying your senses in a supernatural way, but but focusing on the other senses to make up for, you know, what you've lost kind of thing. Um, and, you know, and that like, you know, yeah, like it doesn't have to be something you're defined by. I think that's a big part of it, too, like with you know, whether you're talking about Matt Murdock, how he's still a lawyer, you know, it didn't keep him from being, you know, it didn't make him so discouraged that he couldn't become a successful lawyer. He still did that thing. But then also as Daredevil, it's not something that's looked at as like, oh, cause I, and I always wonder with this, like where we're at in the comic books, like if, cause I feel like at, at certain points, we don't know that Daredevil's blind or like other people don't know. So it's not like he's looked at as the blind superhero. It's like, he's just a superhero. He's going about his daily life. And that's kind of, the way he functions in the world, you know, so, so that, you know, I feel like it's, you know, maybe you get those both of best of both worlds, you know, he, he gets to just in one part of his life, pretend that he's not blind to people around him, but then in other parts, yes, I am blind and look at all that I still was able to accomplish. You know, it didn't, it didn't hold me back, you know? No, I think that's, I think the Matt Murdoch point, point is a really good one. Right. And like training up and like learning to, adapt to the challenges that you have and still being successful. Um, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, this isn't daredevil related, but it's something that sprang to mind. Um, comparing the wizard of Oz, which used an, a vast little people cast for their, did they call them munchkins in that film? Yep. What were those? Yeah. Yeah. Um, as opposed to Lord of the Rings, where, I mean, hobbits are, they're not human, technically, so they're not, like, little people. But the hobbit race is basically smaller humans. Um, and, of course, they used full-size actors and they did some trickery. But I I guess not even Lord of the Rings so much as just comparing The Wizard of Oz to Tolkien's whole various universe. I mean, if we're, Dinklage in uh, Game, Game of Thrones, Thrones. like, mm-hmm. how many times have we seen, like, a dwarf... I mean, that's what it is in the lore or in the books is described as a dwarf. And then we get like Gimli, who's six foot five. Right. And, it's and even the dwarven they... race is bigger than the Hobbit race. 
Right. So it was, that was a really, I think that was a big step forward in terms of like that kind of casting where Dinklage is a little person and an incredible fucking actor. And obviously like within that context of this kind of medieval society, dwarfism is looked down upon and he has to overcome that, but he's like portraying it as like, that's, I would say that that qualifies for sure. My favorite Dinklage uh, uh, role is an elf, though. I was gonna say he fucking beats the shit out of Will Ferrell. <laughs> I was gonna say Dinklage as a giant in Infinity War, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Something about that felt a little more like, I guess, heavy-handed is maybe the term. Mm. Literally, a little well, right? Heavy but ass I, hands. <laughs> a little more like how Disney is always a bit behind everybody else, and with that sort of topic. I yeah, right. I could say that. Yeah, yeah. We had a lot of the white superhero, the white male straight superhero for a long time. Or how like their one of their earlier moments of queerness is in Onward, where the one female character just happens to mention her wife. And that's it. And also Onward was, what was that, 2019? Like, that was very recent. I don't remember that moment in Onward. Yeah, yeah. you don't. Exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the point. Yeah, it's when they pull the they pull them over, the two cops oh, okay. on that's, the street. That's yeah. But well, wait, that's exactly my point, right? Is that, like, Disney's been a little dragging their feet. Well, that's something true. about the, let's use Peter Dinklage and make him giant and call the race doors felt, like, sort of careless is the term i want i don't know dis yeah Yeah. i wonder if it was like in response to something like with lord of the rings where it's like let's take you know people who are of average height and turn them into these you know these smaller characters who you know we do have people who are shorter than average height who could have played those characters so let's do the opposite of that yeah like take take someone who should have maybe you know you know, is it does it fall in that category of like we have you know average heighted people taking away jobs from you know shorter than average heighted people who could have played those roles? So let's do the opposite. Let's do the flip side. Let's take you know someone who's going to be a giant instead of having you know an average heighted person play or like someone who is naturally that high. You know, I think. I mean, I think to me too, it was more like maybe this is worse. It just seemed like it was like a joke. The last person you would expect to be a giant. And it's like, but of course it's Peter Dinklage. So it's like, yes, that's the person who should be the giant. You know? Yeah, I feel like, he, by the way, for, uh, onward. for onward. Yeah. onward. No, with Dinklage, I feel like he he's he's able to pick and choose what he wants. Like if that mm-hmm. if they wanted to make that subjugation of of expectations, I'm I'm pretty sure that he was that was it wasn't a surprise, right? When he got to the the, the theater. <laughs> But. Yeah. What about his Dr. Trask character in Days of Future Past? Is that I have, I know nothing about the comics side of that. If any of you do, yeah, is that I th- character I mean, also I think a little Tra- person in comics. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And I think That's that just... was like a great way of just being like, yeah, why not? You know, it doesn't. Yeah, here's our know. actor. Huh. It's just it, it's someone who has to be smart because they invented this stuff. So hmm. that could be anyone. Yeah. And I think I remember I remember finding out about that and feeling shitty because when I heard Peter Dinklage was going to be in it, I was like trying to think who are all the small characters in X Men he could play, and then it was Trask. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, like he doesn't have to play like someone who is short; like it could just be a person. Yeah, like he was a scientist. Like, of course, you know, he can. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that was one of the things, one, uh, an older film of his, uh, the station agent that I saw, like this was back in my blockbuster days. And I think that was one of the things where he was like, his character was just a person. Like it was, it just so happened, you know, that, that he was a little person. It was, it didn't factor into the story at all. I don't think, you know, so it was an example of like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, it was, I think there were basically two male leads and one female lead. And, and it's like, yeah, like, why does that why does that character have to be of average height like it could it could be peter dinklage instead of someone else sure you know and i remember that being like um you know one of the things about that is like you know again i feel like you go into it being like well how is this going to factor in and then it really doesn't it's just these three people and their conversations and their interactions and whatever and you know and it was like oh yeah right why yeah why can't it be like that yeah yeah definitely check that film out it was like this short little indie thing and it was supposed to be really good. Yeah. He was in three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, which I have not seen. I don't know I if any of you. Either. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember his role in there. Um, yeah. I think it was just kind of one of those inconsequential roles, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not focused on that aspect. Um, yeah. I think he did well in there. Yeah. This was a good topic, Joel. Yeah. We've gone hither and yon with this one. <laughs> and I, you know, nice to, to self-reflect too. Yeah, for try, sure. Try to expand our own minds. Yeah. You said that so sinisterly. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to say expand our own worldview and then changed it to minds. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I didn't mean to, was, to shine a spotlight no, no. on it. <laughs> I was laying the track as I rode the train, like that chunk of that, that clip of grommet, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> With my words. So that's why it was kind of like this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good one. Thank you, and and it was a good movie too, Tim. It, well, thanks. You know, I know we I know we shit on it a lot, but we talked well, a lot about it, and we yeah. we talked to each other a lot. And intera- it was an, it was a great example of what makes movie mumble great, and what makes watching movies with all of you great. You know, another reason yeah. why we're here. So, yeah, listeners, if you have friends to go watch movies with, please do. <laughs> But don't start a podcast about it. That's our thing. <laughs> We're the only one who discuss movies. Uh, this is our niche. <laughs> so next month is going to be Zeke. Zeke, what will you be bringing us next month? Yeah. Give me a quick second. Let me think. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the last time you said I have a question before a pick, like you, you, you put up a, a poll out. You were like... You decide. <laughs> <laughs> I could do that again too. Um, uh, too Zeke is too a man of the people. <laughs> Tim is a uh, a trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like we could get more discussion out of one and the other. Have you all watched Soul yet? Mm-hmm. No, I haven't seen Soul. I haven't seen it. Okay. Let's I go with Soul. Yeah. All right. Oh, nice. okay. So we can go from the top oh. if you want to ask me again, and I'll just say it instead of <laughs> waiting for five minutes and picking right. one. Take two. Yeah. So, Zeke, what film will you be bringing for us next month? Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with another recent pick. I know I've done that a lot lately, um, but I'm going to go with uh, Pixar's Soul. Oh, oh damn. All right. I don't think Tim and I have seen that one. <laughs> no, no, I haven't yeah. seen that one either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. The fake. Well, the fact oh. that. You... 
<laughs> well, Zeke, you did the the yeah, like you you you. Well, you I had to. I you think I'm gonna go with this. <laughs> <laughs> you just did it so like so naturally, like I, I'm I, acting. <laughs> I'm acting. I guess you I all just, were acting too. I just wasn't yeah. expecting it, and it was hilarious. <laughs> the director is right before you say it, we'd be like, "Is it Soul? Are you gonna pick Soul?" <laughs> you seem like soul, a guy who picks bitch. Soul. <laughs> You take two. <laughs> well, no, you, just did it, you did it so naturally. I was like, well, okay, I'm going to try and continue the bit. And I don't you... think Tim and I have seen this. <laughs> did I break first? I think I pre-laughed. I was going to blame it on you, Zeke, and you laughing at it. But it was my own fault. My own damn fault. It, it, it was a mess either way. Because of I'm me and my, and my delayed I'm choices. The whole yeah, of that's, it that's fine. I think Soul's going to be interesting, though. It's been... Yeah. I, I guess I'll call it a divisive Pixar movie, even though right. it's not, you know, the Pixar movie is divisive, right? It's not it's not divisive in the sense that people hate it, but divisive in the sense that it didn't quite, you know, with certain things like Toy Story and The Incredibles, mm-hmm. people hear Pixar movie and just think, oh, yeah, it's going to be, boom, it's going to be a list. And Soul wasn't. Departure. It was a departure is the word right. I think I want. So... Yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of, I guess, like you said, the departure, like what audience is it for? Which audience would it resonate with most? Mm -hmm. Um, And then it came out in 2020, which is mm -hmm. a goldmine of conversation topics, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I think that's a film that was already different for them, released in the middle of a, in a weird way for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excited. Should be good. I've been wanting to, I've been wanting to watch it, but trying to find a reason to watch it because i know with pixar it's like am i crying before the first 15 minutes or at, like <laughs> i don't I need to plan my cries out yeah. do i want to cry before dinner or after dinner <laughs> <laughs> i feel like this uh i feel like it's a late cry yeah i don't okay. think there's it's not an up it's, it's not an up yeah. <laughs> it's the saddest cold open in the history of movies it really is yeah <laughs> so good yeah no, that should be good. Sweet. Nice. Is that our first yeah. Pixar? Maybe. Might and be. First animated? No, because we did no. Skycrawlers. Yeah. yeah. So, sorry. I ruined that one <laughs> ages ago. That was your first pick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you know, we back. talked about, uh, I talk now about how the purpose of the podcast is that we get more of our films when we share them with each other. But something I've re- you've reminded me that I kind of forgot is that one of the other inspirations was films that I would never have given even a half second's thought. But then when I watch them, I go, Ooh, these are good. And you know, only because someone else brings them. Yeah. Skycrawlers was that for me, which is why it was such an early pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so it should be great. I, yeah, it's kind of shocking to believe it's going to be our first Pixar. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I also and a, a fresh one. thought about like toy story or toy story mm-hmm. three, maybe, but yeah, Soul feels like a good seen, conversational one. Yeah, I don't think I've seen Toy Story three or four. Bro, oh, yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> like I know, three, like I just, yeah. yeah, like again, like okay, do I want to cry into my dinner or <laughs> <laughs> three? You're gonna cry for all of the dinners. So, yes, right, yeah, yeah. All right, several dinners afterwards. Too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that'll be. Is this our first quote unquote kids movie? Christmas Story. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. 
True. Mm. <laughs> I keep ruining these these revelations. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, um, Santa Claus. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. Also... Oh, there, yeah. There's definitely a lot fair. of definitely. jokes for adults in that movie, but it's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, so that should be great. Hollywood good. wives. We haven't done it yet, but I think it's safe to say good pick, Zeke. Yeah, yeah thanks. Glimpse of the future, yeah. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Until next time, good night. Bye. 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 Did you know Movie Mumble has its very own Twitter account? Please follow us on Twitter at MovieMumbleNTG and tweet at us with questions, reviews, or recommendations of things you'd like us to watch next.